Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert Lamb, and with me is... I'm the other co-host, Drew Tan. Hey everybody, how's it going? What's welcome, shaking? Welcome to our episode. Uh, today we're going to try to do something a little different. Um, we're uh, So right now in the... Uh, in the comic book world, they're about to roll out a new event series called X of Swords or Ten of Swords, and um, and me, it got me and Drew talking about uh all the various events and uh crossovers that have been that have occurred over at at Marvel over the past, you know few decades years. i guess few decades yeah exactly yeah. so so we wanted to take this as an opportunity to well we're going to we're going to give you a little synopsis of uh 10 of swords but we also thought it'd be a good opportunity for us to talk about you know the events and crossovers in the past that we we have loved and some that we have significantly less feelings than love for (laughs) (laughs) yeah specifically uh x-men events because with comics superhero comics especially i mean like you said they've been around for a few decades events have been around for a few decades but it feels like in the past 15 years or so uh they've just been pumping them out yeah marvel and dc have been pumping them out yeah at least one major one every year, but a couple yeah. of smaller ones to go along with whatever they're doing. Exactly. Uh, so there, there's a lot of a lot of bad comics out there yeah. that we can mock, but uh, we choose not to. Yet. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are just going to focus on some of the X-Men crossovers because I think it's the X-Men stuff from at least starting back in the 80s i'd say the x-men crossovers became kind of a big thing and i think that was what made marvel and then subsequently dc realize that crossover events are money makers basically like cash cows or yeah. it's it's like a way to milk their the audience that they already have i feel yeah. like logically speaking if you want to build your audience it's probably better to find uh you know new readers and and expand that way and get new readers to become regular readers yeah but uh this the the strategy that the big two like to employ is they just want to milk their current audience for everything they've got yeah so it i don't it never really feels like these crossovers or events do anything much to to draw new people in i mean sure there's a certain level of hype inherent in an event but for the most part i uh, can't really imagine some person who's you know watching x-men movies or cartoons or something hearing about an event in a comic store and then deciding that's how he's gonna dive into the comics yeah. it's I'm gonna jump yeah. into the middle of this story that's been being that's been built up already for the past two years because that's where 
it's going to make the most sense for me to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, talking about event comics and, and crossovers and stuff like that, um, we did come to our own working definition of the term event comic. So let's let's get into that a little bit, just so people have a frame of reference in terms of uh, what we're discussing here. So the way that we define the term event comic is that an event comic is a story that does basically four main things. Like number one, an event comic is expressly calculatingly designed to sell more comics throughout that publisher's line. Like, what do you, what do you have to say about that aspect of event comics, Albert? Uh, truthfully, it's probably the most cynical and damaging element of it. Uh, <laughs> Commerce well, over art, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's debatable. Uh, like I, I, I'd have to think about that in comparison to, uh, the other um, definitions that we've developed for an event comic. But I look, I get it. Comics is a business, and in order for it to flourish, they have to be able to um, sustain themselves, and they have to be profitable. That makes, you know, mm-hmm. that, that makes sense to me it, just as a harsh reality. Like, that's just life, okay? Yeah. But, um... There are there are ways to go about it that if they take the wrong lesson from it, uh, their decision making process can be pretty detrimental to comics as a comics as a whole. It can be detrimental to them. Um, so you mentioned earlier that. Um, these event comics are a cash grab because it allows them to tie, you know, a a singular story to several other books. In some cases, uh, they're popular. In some cases, they might not be quite so popular, Mm -hmm. but you know, the, the, the calculation is that I'm going to get this random comic. I'm going to, I'm going to take slapstick issue number five. <laughs> I'm going to tie that in and I'm going to hype it up because I'm going to say that something happens in this random comic that affects the main story. And, you know, they, they try to do it with all of them because like take Marvel, for example, you've got like 40 comics going on and not all of them are going to be selling mad, uh, mad copies. So yeah. what do they do? Like they're they're gonna roll out an event and then they're gonna say, oh, you know, twenty of these comics are tied into this event. So you're gonna see the story from their perspective, but they're gonna make some sort of major contribution to the overall thing. And again, the calculation is that uh, it's gonna boost sales across the board, you know, to even yeah. the weaker selling comics, and um. It's something that short in in the short term, uh, I I assume that it's benefited them, and that's why they keep doing it. Like, cause I I can't see why else they would 
do that otherwise unless they had numbers to show that in the short term it it benefits them right yeah and according to the numbers it does benefit them it benefits them in the short term like it, it's shown it's a uh, yeah the sales pretty much prove that out where whenever yeah. they do an event some struggling title will that's tied into the to the event see uh, however tenuously it's, it does see an artificial boost but just for that one issue you know like yeah. i remember like let's let's take for example uh back in the mid 2000s infinite crisis from dc yeah i remember uh i think there was an issue of batgirl or something at the time really had nothing to do with infinite crisis except uh they made it they called it a tie-in and put the infinite crisis banner on the cover uh-huh. and if you actually read the comic it's just her ongoing series with nothing to do with infinite crisis except in in one panel uh she looks up into the sky and you see some omax flying overhead and like she's like what is that and then uh-huh. you know moves on it's like come on all right back to it <laughs> yeah. or, or one of those issues where the sky is red the whole time because yeah. you know infinite crisis is happening and that means the sky is red yeah see and that's the tie-in she's in the world yeah <laughs> she's she's part of the shared universe yeah pretty pretty ridiculous stuff it's I, cynical it's, it's really cynical yeah it's really cynical it's insulting yeah. to the reader yeah like if i was someone that was buying batgirl on a regular basis at the time and i saw that that would that would really irk me yeah, yeah. you know it, it's it's just something that takes you out of the ongoing story and it serves no real purpose whatsoever yeah i mean and then which... somebody yeah somebody who doesn't normally buy batgirl but decides to buy that issue because oh it's a tie-in yeah what are they gonna think they're not gonna enjoy it either yeah and if anything they're, they're just gonna harbor some sort of resentment towards comics as a whole <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the thing that i wanted to mention or add was so that's one way of um you know making money but the purist in me, the the optimist in me, would like to think that the common sense approach to making money should be ultimately just make a good product. Yeah. <laughs> if it's good and if people want to read it because it's good, then you don't need gimmicks to sell it. <laughs> yeah, know? exactly. You don't need you don't to need... tie it into an like into an artificial event that hypes its importance. Yeah, exactly. It's all the hype. I think the hype. It, it's the hype is always very calculated because they're constantly rolling out teasers and press press releases yeah. and and just making it sound like oh this is gonna change the Marvel universe forever this is gonna change the DC universe forever but when when the universe changes every year it kind of loses its power you know and yeah. I think you and I have been reading comics long enough where things like that don't really um, excite us or or uh, they don't. Like at the at the very most, maybe we'll uh, look up spoilers online just so we know yeah. what's going on. But I I can't remember the last time. There I'm was not an gonna event rush into I, a comic shop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not gonna yeah. knock over a child to get an issue of this. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna knock over a child to grab a fresh copy off the rack or anything. Yeah, but to be we fair, can always wait for the library to get it, and then you can knock over all the children you want. <laughs> I like to kick them in my cleats. 
<laughs> Sad enough to say, there's probably a lot more kids at libraries than at comic book stores. Yeah. <laughs> but I was also going to say, like, I'm saying this jokingly, but I'm pretty sure there are people that would actually do that in a comic book store. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we've met people like that. Yeah. And I got no respect for them. Yeah. I'm I'm ashamed for them. Mouth breathers. That's yep. what they are. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I had one other thought, but I lost it. <laughs> Maybe it'll come back to you. Maybe it'll um, come back, yeah. The, the second item, or the second aspect of an event comic is that an event comic typically encompasses multiple properties or characters. Yeah. So that's why when you have a something like, I don't know, Empire, you know, it's supposed to be the Avengers and the Fantastic Four um, and all these other characters that join in the fun. Um, you know, pretty much any any crossover pulls characters from different titles together to give you yeah. a feeling of, uh, you know, something special is happening because everyone has to get together. Yeah. Actually, I remembered what my thought was, and it's, uh-huh. it's tied into this. So I don't... Okay, so to those of you who aren't too familiar with comics and, you know, seeing all these characters together in the same place, I, I would say that one thing to keep in mind is... Okay, okay, so just as a point of reference, I would say that if you think about the movie Infinity War, where the last two movies were a culmination of like 10 years worth of movies and you finally see everyone together. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of what as a kid seeing an event comic was like for the first time. Yeah. Like the first time you read infinity gauntlet when you were a kid. Exactly. Um, But the point that I was making earlier was uh, to some degree, well, I'm not going to speak for Drew, but certainly for myself, um, I'm 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 a bit of a jaded comic book collector. Um, <laughs> they and it's because they've made me this way, and because they've done, they again they do these events so often, and you know they throw everybody together so often that it it rubs your nerve a little raw. <laughs> they've killed that nerve in me. So yeah. like you're a product of your environment now. Yeah, yeah. You didn't choose this life. This life chose you. Exactly. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, I want to be able to be excited for those things, right? Like, at at its purest, at its best, when those kinds of stories work out, they can be loads of fun. I want that to be the case. But, again, the the, um, event industrial complex at Marvel (laughs) and DC... Have just made it so that every year, or not even every year, like two or three times a year, you you have these events and mini events where they just throw everybody together to you know hype it up and to generate sales, sales. artificially. Yeah, so yeah. um, it's tiresome. It is tiresome, and it, I guess yeah, I guess it just depends on how you look at that to to those of you that are more uh 
more optimistic and more bright-eyed than I. Uh, then if you still love those, then, um, <laughs> you know, I, I guess this is your world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, some people probably have a higher tolerance level than we do. Yeah, but we're but grizzled. I, I think, yeah, <laughs> what you said made me think of when I was a kid and uh, that summer when the Infinity Gauntlet came out. It's a big deal, man. That was fun. Like that was, yeah. like I was, I was still pretty small. I think I was like, what year was that? Like 1991, probably. So I was like maybe eight years old. Yeah. Um, but I remember that summer, man. Um, just waiting for the next issue, wondering when the next issue would come out. Um, like my dad would take me to the store, and I would just look for stuff like uh, the latest issue of Infinity Gauntlet or or uh, whatever tie-ins were were coming out like at that time there weren't too many times but silver surfer was one of them and that's how i got into silver surfer because it was a an infinity gauntlet tie-in yeah and i i guess it yeah thinking back it that kind of stuff was pretty effective on me when i was a kid yeah um as an adult i don't think it would have hit me the same way because like you said I am jaded, uh, just as you are. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, we're we're grown we're grown men, so well, <laughs> things I, that appeal to us when we were kids aren't gonna hit us the same. Um, but yeah. But I think there's still something to be said about trying as a comic book fan. We still try to chase that high, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. we want we want to feel like the feeling that we got when we first read Infinity Gauntlet as kids. That's the kind of feeling that we're constantly chasing as we read comics today. Yeah. You know, that feeling that you got the first time you read Batman Year One, that's the whole yeah. reason why you continue reading more Batman comics because you want something. <laughs> We're to degenerates. Feel like- <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, though, I mean, I don't know. Okay, so, and this could just, this could be a working theory of mine, but I, I think the difference is from when I, you could say that. I've matured uh, or, you know, I've grown uh, mentally since I was a kid. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and maybe I think that's... it's a pretty likely possibility, at least 87%. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, so there, there's a chance that you know, maybe why those things don't quite hit me the same way is is because I've aged out of that. But there there are other instances where I see those sort of events. Maybe, okay, maybe I don't get quite as excited. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when, when it's done well, when it's done right, like, I can appreciate and enjoy it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, and the thing that I was going to say is, at this point in my life, we've had maybe 10, 15 years of these events from the big two. And uh, in terms of the new stuff that they pump out, like, is it any surprise that, like, my my feelings are dead for those on some <laughs> level? <laughs> uh, like, Valiant occasionally does these event stories, and uh, I think... I think I can say those are pretty well done. They're yeah, well done, and I'm generally supportive of those, 
assuming that they don't get out of hand or anything. <laughs> I think the thing with a lot of the Valiant comics uh, events is that they tend to be these self-contained four-issue miniseries. Mm, yeah. So you don't really need to get all the other interrupt stuff. your. You're not interrupting the story that you're reading and the comic that you're collecting or following. Um, you yeah. don't have to buy another comic that you never buy just to get part three of seven or yeah. whatever it is, you know? Yeah. So it's it's a lot... It makes a lot more sense when it's a self-contained miniseries. And I think I that's one of the... I don't want them to make me buy Ivor yeah. Time Walker. Yeah, exactly. In, in order to to know what like how one thing happened that you know ultimately makes the story quote unquote make sense <laughs> <laughs> I won't do it I refuse no to buy a friend Van Lent the comic time walker. Huh? No love for Ivar the Time Walker? No love for Fred Van Lent. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> <laughs> So, so going back to our working definition of the term event comic, uh, I said we had four elements, and we've talked about two of them already. The third element is that an event comic is a story that purports to leave a major impact on the status quo moving forward. Yeah. So that's generally what they say. That's very rarely ever the case. Yeah. Or maybe it's it's just a matter of the status quo changes so often that it's almost meaningless. meaningless. You don't yeah. really get a chance to enjoy that new world that they've set up in the event. Yeah. Like, like if the status yeah, quo, sorry, it's basically think about it this way. If the status quo is constantly being shattered and world altered so that there's some new other big revelation or change, then is there ever truly a status quo that was had? It just means that the status quo is the universe is constantly changing. Yeah. And you can never, you can never get comfortable with or enjoy what you're reading because something's going to happen to shake things up again. Yeah. Just like it did last month. Yeah. There's no sense of consistency yeah. whatsoever. It it gets very tiresome. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Like I I I don't know, like I, maybe life does change at a certain pace, but with some of these comics, I don't I don't need them to be going through some sort of existential crisis every six months. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'll, I'll even go so far as to say the few times that I can remember in recent history when an event comic really did change things for a significant period of time, we didn't get good comics then either. Like I think about Flashpoint from DC, you know, that led to the new 52. Yeah. Yeah. That the just new 52 ruined lasted an entire for, line. <laughs> yeah, the New 52 still lasted, what, like five or six years before they started walking it back? Yeah. But that was a pretty rough period. Yeah. Like, if you think about it, prior to, to the New 52, okay, I guess if you count, I, I don't really count Zero Hour because I don't even know what that changed, but 
prior to that, the like last huge shift was Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? And then yeah, nineteen eighty six or eighty seven or something like that. Yeah, and I think what Crisis was in or uh, Zero Hour was in the nineties or something like that. Yeah, it was probably yeah, but for the most part, or something for the most part, nobody one nobody really noticed Zero Hour. <laughs> so it just felt like it was Crisis on Infinite Earths, and then the DC Universe was the same up until they Infinite decided Crisis? to do Infinite Crisis slash yeah yeah up until they decided to do Infinite Crisis, and then they just a few years after that they decided to do Flashpoint. It's just what happened. What yeah. happened? Why? Wh- why was there such a big gap between Crisis on Infinite Earths and Infinite Crisis? But then, why did that gap shrink so much? Yeah. Ever since then. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then, and then, uh, after uh, the New Fifty Two, there was the Rebirth era. Yeah. Which I guess we're still in. But it's uh, marginally yeah. better, if only because they're... Superman has his underwear back on the outside. Yeah, well, I was gonna say because to some degree they're telling us to ignore the stuff in the New Fifty Two, <laughs> and I'll take any opportunity true. to do that. <laughs> that is very true. I've actually been liking a lot of DC books uh, from the past couple years, more so than the just New the New Fifty Two era. Yeah. The Rebirth era has been a lot better. Yeah. And and it's... like the imprints that they're doing with the the young animal stuff and um the Wonder Comics line. That's all yeah. been great. Yeah. Plus they're they're doing a uh, Jinx World now, so all of uh, Bendis's creator owned stuff is coming out from them. Nice. So I, I give them credit for that. Yeah. They've really got nothing to do with the DC universe. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're trying. They're trying, I guess. And then the fourth element of our definition of an event comic is that an event comic is a story that is not solely contained within the ongoing narrative of a single serialized title. So, in other words, it's not just a story arc of an on of an ongoing series, even if that uh, story arc has guest appearances from other characters. It's it also uh, as a corollary to that. An event comic can be a miniseries, or it could be a miniseries with a bunch of tie-in issues, or it could be a crossover between multiple ongoing titles. So, so, you know, that's when you have, like, Spider-Man is part one of the story, and then Captain America is part two, and then you got to buy Slapstick number 17 for part three. (laughs) (laughs) I like how Slapstick is going, is becoming our go-to for, like, a lame character (laughs) <laughs> that, that we just want to reference. <laughs> See, that, that's the sad thing is that people would Marvel thinks if they want to make slapstick sell, they'd have to make it tie into an event, but they don't know that they got two fans right here that'll buy it <laughs> off the racks without an event. <laughs> you know what? When I first learned about slapstick as a kid, there was enough of an interest in it where I was like, you know what? I'll give that a chance just because he was such a bizarre character. <laughs> yeah. Didn't he have a miniseries a couple years ago? He did. Someone tried to bring him back? Fred Van Lent wrote that. <laughs> oh, so yeah. 
I guess you didn't. Uh, I did. I not. guess you passed on it. Okay, I, I passed. It was a hard pass. Okay, so yeah. you don't have that much love for slapstick I that you're don't. willing to buy anything. I have more hate for Fred Van Lint than I do love for <laughs> slapstick. <laughs> Dang, man. what did he ever do to you? That sounds personal, Albert. I read his comics. They defiled my eyes. <laughs> My eyes will never be as pure as they were before I read any of his comics. <laughs> oh, man, that's brutal. That's brutal. <laughs> that's what he did to my eyes. He brutalized them. <laughs> so are you so, going to check out this Ten of Swords comic, Albert? What do you um, think about Ten of Swords, the new X-Men crossover event? So, uh, just as a little bit of uh, back matter or supporting information to those of you who aren't familiar, um, X of Swords is, I feel like it's a combination of, um, it's a combination of all of the X series that came out in the aftermath of another big event that took place, when was that? When was H of X? Just Power. one year ago. House Just of X year and ago, Power right? of Ten. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, House of X and Power of Ten was this pretty... It was a big initiative from uh, Marvel to revamp the X lines. And they, they brought in, you know, a heavy hitter, a big name writer. And, you know, I was excited about House of X and Power of Ten. So that was a good thing. But it it felt like... At the time, the, so at the time, what they did was they decided to cancel all the X books, and there would only be two books for a period of six months. No, and, no, it wasn't. It was a uh, two months, two months. Oh, two months. Oh, I'm sorry. Because, because all, or even less, or a little, yeah, about two months, three months, I think. Because, because the books were six issues each, and they came out once a week. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So for a period of two months, all of the other X books were canceled. Three Which months, I think. Four three months. Tw- four months. Four issues a month. We can do math. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, okay. For a period of time, let's just say that. <laughs> I don't want to get too bogged down in the details, but... Um, so, it felt like it was a big deal at the time because uh, the X-Books up to that point had... To be quite honest, they it felt like they had stagnated quite a bit and... I, I know I definitely wasn't interested in any any of the X-Books that was coming out. So this news was kind of a big deal because it felt like a pretty significant shift. Um, it felt, yeah, they were streaming down their books and, you know, you were just going to get two. And we I, I didn't know what the X-Universe was going to look like in, after that. Well, now here we are a year later and they've got so many more books and um with the announcement of ten of swords uh like this is going to be a 24 part crossover event series yeah and Uh, it's 24 issues and it's going across a bunch of comics in their line if not all the series and it's all going to come out in the span of like two months which is ridiculous because then you're buying multiple multiple chapters a week, basically, 
and they've I think they've even solicited the the hardcover collection to come out in November. Yeah. And the sad thing is the creative teams on some of the books are aren't bad. And um, there's no Fred Van Lent for you, Albert. There they ain't no Fred Van Lent. I'd <laughs> give any of them a chance, uh significant chance over Fred Van Lent. But but like Poor I guy, feel, we're just ragging on him. <laughs> I'm sure he donates to charities and he's just a he's a stand up citizen, so I have I have no reason to hate the man. I hate the writer. <laughs> <laughs> the you man respect his dignity as a human being. <laughs> the man ain't done no wrong in my eyes. The writer, on the other hand, he's a genocidal maniac. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, I feel like any of the individual writers involved in any of the books, I would give a chance if. If they were writing some other book on its own, like, and I just happened to come across it, but because they're all part of this massive um, web that Marvel has created for the X for these this X event, it's just daunting, and it, I know it's this gimmick that's intended to gin up excitement but all it's done is it's made me more hesitant to embrace this story than yeah than likely yeah i remember maybe about uh, i don't know 10 years ago there was a term that was coming up in the fandom uh and that term was event fatigue yeah and i don't know if people still really throw that term around but um, it sounds like you've got a bad case of it, man. Well, I don't see why that term would disappear because it's not like Marvel or DC did anything to change their behavior in the in the following years. If anything, they've gotten worse. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. D- uh, do you have any thoughts on this uh, series or this event? Um, well, I'll be honest, I haven't read anything after House of X and Powers of Ten, so I'm I'm pretty slow behind on my X-Men. I wasn't, when, when, uh, when, when the Dawn of X era began, I was basically planning just to buy the Jonathan Hickman books, like, whatever he wrote himself, I'd pick up, uh, in, in trade or just wait for the collected edition, because I'm dirty like that. I'm a dirty run trade waiter <laughs> or a hardcover waiter or an omnibus buyer, whatever, yeah. you know? Um, but I, I think as I've waited, um, some of the, they've been putting out these Don of X trades, but they, they collect like issue one of, of like all five or six different series, you know? And then volume two is like issue two of all the different series so I definitely was not gonna buy that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was I was gonna borrow them from the library, but then um, the pandemic happened, so they kind of put the library uh, idea on hold since they haven't been open. Maybe yeah. they're maybe those comics are available digitally on Hoopla or something. I haven't I haven't looked, um, just because I think I just 
wanted to finish all the library books, like the physical books that I had checked out anyway. Mm. And I, for, for the first time in a long time, I've actually read all the library books I've checked out. <laughs> nice. Well done. Yep. Yep. So that's a load off my back. Uh, when the libraries open up again, I can return them. <laughs> I've got like 30 books, man. Like no joke. It's yeah. like 30, 30 hardcovers and trade paperbacks, all comics. <laughs> nice. So I'm, I'm pretty behind on the X-Men stuff. Uh, I don't feel like it's too urgent for me to pick up on 10 of swords. Um, Maybe when the hardcover drops in November, I'll I'll think about it. Uh, I mean, I'll be missing out on everything that happened in between, obviously. So I don't know if I should just pick it up just to get it, or if I should wait. And maybe you know, in five years down the line, there'll be they'll do like a Don of X omnibus, and I can just get all of it in order at that yeah. point. Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's I haven't really decided yet, but but to to be frank, it, it doesn't really feel urgent, so important to me yeah. at this time. Like I don't really feel like oh I, I have to pick up Ten of Swords just so I know what everybody's talking about. You know, like yeah. I think it's like you said earlier. We've we've been in the game so long that every event it doesn't really matter, right? Like it, people can Marvel or DC can tell us how important or how how big this event is. But at the end of the day, uh, even if the event, if the story gets spoiled, I'm not really gonna care too much. Like it's yeah. not gonna, it's not gonna bother me. It's not gonna, it's not gonna make me decide that I'm not gonna read it. It's not gonna make me decide that I have to read it. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Do you wanna? Do you want me to go into a brief synopsis of uh, Ten of Swords? Yeah, if you know what's going on, go for it, man. Yeah, so just for those of you that are listening, well, okay, just full disclosure, I I don't really know. I I'm just as oblivious to the things, the happenings in the X world uh, as uh, Drew is here. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just too much to keep up with sometimes. So. Uh, I, this is secondhand knowledge to me that we just found online, you know, so for those of you that are listening, so, uh, I'm just reading a synopsis that we found online, essentially. Um, it's pronounced Ten of Swords, as in the Roman numeral X, like it's, uh, predecessor. The Roman numeral. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Ten of Swords. Yeah. But uh, it's, it's, they use an X just because it's X-Men. <laughs> so, hey, it's branding, man. <laughs> so silly. Um, yeah, so like its predecessor, Power of Ten, powers of ten. or Powers of X. Uh, the 24-part crossover pits ten mutants wielding ten powerful blades from around the Marvel Universe against the sword bearers of Araco, mysterious enemies from the ancient past. With ties to the X-Men's one-time foe slash current uneasy ally, Apocalypse. There you go. Now yeah. we don't have to read the actual comic because we know what happens. Yeah. It's just <laughs> X-Men with magic swords. Yeah. <laughs> what else do you need? What else do you need, guys? <laughs> <laughs> if that doesn't sell you on it, nothing will. 
No, I mean, I, I am interested in the story just because Hickman is part of it. Yeah, the like I, yeah, like I said, mentioned earlier, the 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 thing that's kind of a shame about this is that the creative talent behind it is actually impressive. Or well, at least Hickman is. Um, I imagine I think what Benjamin Percy is there too, and I think Teeny Howard, and they're good. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember know. all the other writers and artists. It's I don't a remember. bunch of people. Uh, yeah, it's a bunch of people, but uh, Jerry Dugan, I think, is writing Marauders. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, I've actually never read yeah. a Gary Jerry Dugan comic, so um, but I hear good things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's anyway. The crossover is, I think, the first part just dropped uh, this past week as we're recording. Mm. So it's sure to be, uh, I'm sure we'll hear a lot more of, about it in the coming weeks as the yeah. hype continues to build and and people start talking about all the revelations and whatnot. I'll still pay attention just because I am interested enough to keep up with what's going on. I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy when it comes to superhero comics, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to cover my ears, uh, log off the internet and be like, no spoilers, you know? Like, I don't, I don't really, that doesn't really bother me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's going to be anything in a comic like this that's going to hurt me if it gets spoiled, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I hear you, man. I hear you. So... Now that we've discussed uh, what an event comic is and we've given you guys an idea of uh, the big X event that's coming out of uh, Marvel just, you know, this year, just now even, uh, we, we thought we'd take this as an opportunity to go over some of the X events in the past that uh that have happened that we appreciated and we wanted to share that with you guys and just go over it and you know give you guys a little bit of insight into uh the kinds of events we do enjoy and why we enjoy them yeah yeah and i think with event comics i always i personally have my uh expectations tempered i certainly don't judge an event comic the same way i would judge uh, a typical ongoing series or a story arc from a normal series you know because the events as we mentioned at the top of the show you know there's they're really just generate they're there to generate sales they're there to generate hype uh and I think because of that, they tend to be more of a spectacle. So if, if you expect that you're going to be seeing something that's more of a spectacle as opposed to something that's more centered around like subtle storytelling, then yeah, you'll be okay. But if you're, if you're picking up, uh, I don't know, an issue of, uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths or whatever, and you're expecting it to be a, a character study or something, 
I'm probably going to be disappointed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if you just want to see a bunch of people in different costumes punching each other, uh, this yeah. is pretty much all you got to get, man. You don't. I wonder if there are people out there that don't even really buy ongoing series and all they really do is buy the events. That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. That'd be weird if I met somebody like that. I'd just be like, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, like I, I was listening to your uh, description and I would happen to agree. Uh, I think in recent years, I've decided that the best way for me to enjoy my event comics are basically to look for events that don't take themselves too seriously. Um, yeah. It's, it's almost like we expect every event comic to be dumb, so we just enjoy the event comics that have the least amount of dumb stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I don't want to ever become one of those guys that thinks that comics were only good when, you know, were, that, that only considers comics at their peak when they were growing up. But yeah. Like, I will say that I think for me personally, like, Infinity Gauntlet might just be the height of that for me. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Interesting. So, yeah, so, like, I don't... Uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe I, I'm just... Again, I'm just too jaded for for current uh, event comics. But, anyways. Anyways. Uh, yeah. Any other thoughts? I was going to say uh, there are some event comics that uh, I think or what I, what I hear on on the internet or from listening to like other podcasts here and there where people discuss event comics. Sometimes it feels like people really care that they matter, you know, like to them. I think that's one of the selling points because because the hype around an event comic the company is always saying this is going to change the Marvel universe forever or the DC universe forever. Nothing will ever be the same. So it makes it sound like these stories matter. But mm. to me, what matters is if I'm reading a good story, I don't really care if a major death or resurrection happens in the story. That's not necessarily something that automatically makes the story matter to me, you know? Right, right, right. It's almost like there are people out there that treat superhero comics as though there's some kind of uh, biographical record of actual heroes, and they have to, <laughs> you know, like they have, they have to find out what really happens to Spider-Man. What happens when he takes his mask off in Civil War? That 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 mattered, you know. <laughs> Uh, I would say that that probably is likely the case. I'm pretty sure there are, I, I, I think we're in the minority of fans who look at it and just go, you know, it's to have, I think we're in the minority of fans to have the self-awareness to go, these are all just fictional stories. Yeah. <laughs> I would say the majority of them would probably share the same sentiment that, that these are all 
real things that happened <laughs> to, you know, these characters that, although fictional, they believe to be real enough or whatever, right? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's bizarre yeah. and it's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. When, when Spider-Man, when, when he took off his mask in Civil War, I did enjoy that for what it was. Yeah, but, but I have to say I never for a second thought that oh now he's never gonna have a secret identity again. Yeah, you know, like yeah. that that was a fun moment in the event itself as a yeah it was a fun moment and it was memorable for sure. Mm. And it, and I think there were a couple of stories that did. Um, that could there were a couple of stories in Spider-Man's own books around that time that couldn't have been told if people didn't know his secret identity. But ultimately, that change did not last very long. <laughs> <laughs> it really didn't. It really didn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All it took was one deal with the devil. Yeah. And everybody forgot. See, kids? If you really want something badly enough, you make a deal with the devil. <laughs> <laughs> common sense kids <laughs> so albert out of all the x-men events of the past what are the ones that we can say between the gutters has officially enjoyed um one of the ones that made it to the top of our list was House of M. So this is an interesting one because I feel like it's one that amongst comic fans is pretty well known. And I always feel like people either hate it or they, well, I don't know if they love it, but they they either, they either hate, hate it, it or they don't hate it as much. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've, let me give a brief description of House of M. But uh, so it's written by Brian Michael Bendis and drawn by Olivier Coipel. That it's Olivier Co Coipel, right? I think that's how you pronounce his name. Right. Okay. And it's a story that takes place in the aftermath of a. Uh, it, of the of a story called Avengers Disassembled and the revelation or or the the occurrence that takes place at the end of Avengers Disassembled is the Avengers get uh, attacked from all sides by all these different enemies and the revelation is that they're actually projections from uh, the Scarlet Witch's mind who's, as she's losing control of her mind, uh, her powers are manifesting and they're lashing out at, at all the Avengers to the point where um, at the end of it, the Avengers temporarily disassemble and Magneto takes the Scarlet Witch and, uh, you know, takes her away from them because everyone's basically afraid of, her powers and she's his daughter in the comics. Yeah. She's his daughter. So he's, he's taking her away to protect her because everyone is afraid of her and what she might be capable of doing. 
And when you start House of uh, House of M, what happens is the world has changed, and all of a sudden we live in a world where um, the predominant species are mutants, and regular humans are in decline. And at the top of society is the House of M, which is the House of Magneto, and they are they're 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 kind of the rulers. I think that's what they were, right? They were like the rulers yeah, of this society. Pretty much. Yeah. So every so everyone in this society doesn't remember how how they got this way or um or anything before before the before or the world before the change. But a select few individuals still retain some memory and as a result you know there's there's a rush to change the world back to the way it was Mm -hmm. is that a fairly accurate description of the event yeah yeah i can get behind that okay do you feel like i'm missing anything nothing too significant i think that's uh an apt summary it's just one of those stories that that's kind of like an alternate reality type of story yeah except Technically speaking, I think it's not really an alternate reality so much as it is an altered reality because, Ooh. yeah, because they, they didn't actually go into a different dimension or anything. I think the Scarlet Witch's powers actually altered reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what they did. Um, so it's it's a story that is pretty focused around the Avengers and the X-Men. I think it was originally... Uh, marketed as a crossover between the new Avengers and the astonishing X-Men because those were the, the two big uh, flagship books at the time. Joss Whedon's astonishing X-Men? Yeah. House of M came, came out uh, when Joss Whedon was on astonishing. I mean, he didn't have anything to do with it. It was just yeah. a way for Marvel to brand the titles or the, the miniseries. But there were a ton of uh, tie-ins that most of them you didn't really need to read. Mm. Yeah. I mean, there were some some gems amongst them. I think Brubaker did a Captain America one, right? Yeah, Brubaker had a Captain America one. Like, the thing about Brubaker's tie-in was that it was in the middle of his Winter Soldier story. Yeah. So, if you're if you were buying those issues on a monthly basis you'd pick up i think it was like issue nine or something right out of a 14 issue story you pick up issue nine you're like what the heck man <laughs> totally, yeah. totally different uh story you know the narrative that you've been reading has been completely interrupted it's just annoying but with uh with hindsight you know you can go back now and, and just pick out that one issue the house of m Captain America tie-in, and you can enjoy that for what it is, which is a, a story about how Captain America, Steve Rogers, was able to grow old. Um, he never got frozen in the ice, and he just kind of lived out his days. Mm. So it, it's kind of a, an interesting story there. Uh, so I'm not going to say that every every tie-in was total trash, but there were that was definitely one of the better issues. Uh, but there were a lot of other tie-ins 
that I remember being pretty worthless. Mm. See, the thing with House of M was that was the crossover event that kind of kickstarted the current era that we're in. Because up up before House of M, it had been a while since we'd had any real major event comics, right? Like, I can't think of... Yeah, it feels like House of M was like the big kickoff. Yeah, because after after House of M, it was just a slew of them. Yeah, yeah, it was just... After House of M, they were doing one every year. Yeah. Before House of M, they had gone a few years without any real crossovers. And and the crossovers that they did have were pretty insignificant. You know, they were ones that we don't talk about. Nobody really remembers them. Yeah. 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 Um... Do you have any thoughts on on House of M itself? Like, like why, why, why does it make it to your list here or our list here for you? I think I just enjoy it as a spectacle. Uh, yeah, like I was saying earlier, when I look at an event comic, I want an entertaining spectacle that that isn't too dumb. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and I, I think. A story about uh, an alternate or an altered world. That there's just something entertaining about that, even when you know that there are, the consequences are going to be minimal. Like you know that everything's going to revert back to the way it was. Yeah. So I, I don't really mind that. No, going going in, I already know that's going to happen. So it's not an outrage when I see it on yeah. the page. Well, but the way that the the way that they worked out the story with all the different characters, uh, figuring out that they were in uh, an altered world, there was something compelling about that. Like I remember them tracking down uh, the different characters, like Spider Man, and you know he was basically living his dream life, and when they gave him back his real memories, he was in a dark place, man. And, you know, just little moments like that that always stood out to me over the years. And the artwork was really sweet. I liked, yeah. I really liked Olivier Coypel's art in that comic. He was really good at drawing um, just kinetic action and or frenetic action and just really, I guess, yeah, he just captured the, the spectacle of it all, of all the different when you when you have an event comic, you got to be able to draw a bunch of characters uh, in these splash pages, doing stuff, fighting yeah. and whatnot. And I thought that he did a really good job uh, making it look really energetic. Yeah, I I will mention that one of the things um, about House of M that I guess is different from the other. Um, that's different from the other events on our list is the fact that it is an altered universe. So the thing about it is you, you get to the thing about altered un, or altered slash alternate universe stories is you get to see characters that you know and love in other settings or in other designs. Yeah. Which is part of the fun of those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you, you're absolutely right when you say that Olivier Coypel's art is just awesome. Like I, I always remember this one scene where uh, I guess someone had sent a sentinel to assassinate Magneto, 
and you know it's just flying towards him and magneto just stops it in its place with his power and it's just this really big splash page of this really giant cool looking sentinel um i might be remembering the scene wrong but i just remember the the splash page with this giant sentinel and i thought it was really cool looking um, yeah just his redesign for it yeah yeah and another thing about house of m that i uh enjoyed was just the idea of the the mutants having their dream world like that was or i guess i guess it was more magneto than rather than all mutants but uh it, it was interesting to see the inversion of the mutants being the elite of society while uh, humans or, or non, non-mutant people were kind of the, I guess they were the, the outcasts or the persecuted ones that... Yeah, fell. they were in decline. <laughs> yeah, they were in decline. Yeah. The other thing, another thing about House of M that I thought was strong was the fact that you could just read the eight issue miniseries and get a f- complete story there. Like the fact that it was one guy who wrote it and one penciler, it it actually felt like a more complete story than most other uh, event comics. Because mm. even like even though it was billed as a, an Avengers and X Men crossover, you really didn't need to be reading any X Men to understand what was going on. Yeah. Uh, even with the Avengers stuff, like it, it, I think it's it makes more sense to read House of M as part of the larger tapestry of what Bendis was doing during his tenure on Avengers, and I think that gives it value because it it was a significant chapter in his Avengers run. Yeah. So I'll, I I got a I got I get more enjoyment from it knowing that, um, which is ironic because we're here talking about X Men events, but I think I like House of M more because of the Avengers elements. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a cheat. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. You want to move on to the next comic that we got on the list? Yeah. What else? What else? So next up, we have Axis. Um, it's by... This is a comic or event that was by Rick Remender. I forget who the artist is. I think it had a few different artists, but I, I want to say one of the Cuberts was on it. Okay, I top of my head, and I didn't. I don't have my copy on me with me. Okay, so um, this was a comic that took place as uh, at the end of, or I don't even know if it was at the end, but uh, at the time Rick Remender was writing his Uncanny Avengers, uh, and one of the things that he had been building up to was. <clears throat> and this is pretty crazy, but <laughs> one of the things that he was building up to was he was building up to the Red Skull stealing Professor X's brain. Because <laughs> at the time, Professor X was dead. Yeah. So in when when Axis starts, he uh, the Red Skull has Professor X's brain and he's using it to unleash his potential for hate throughout the world you know he's using 
the the strongest telepathic mind in the world to release rays of telepathy that are warping people. Hate. <laughs> <That> hate. Are, <laughs> waves of hate that are warping people throughout the world. And the thing about Axis is, um, so you have like a, a group of heroes that are going after him and then there are a group of villains but as an unintended consequence of uh, everything that's going on. Oh yeah, and I forgot to mention, so this new version of the Red Skull fused with uh, Professor X's brain, he calls himself Red Onslaught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and another thing that I always enjoyed and thought was funny was when when all these hate rays go out into the world, it starts, it triggers World War Hate. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is a comic that's that's just dumb enough to recognize how dumb it all is. So yeah, I think there are there are people out there that took it too seriously and 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 can't really enjoy something like that. Yeah, well, yeah they they wanted it to be a magnum opus or something like that, you know. But yeah. Rick Remender was just having fun. Exactly. So, yeah, so um, the, the the primary conceit of Axis is, uh, so Red Onslaught is releasing these hate rays throughout the world, and there are different heroes and villains present battling it out. But one of the unintended consequences of the hate rays is it affects some of the heroes and it affects some of the villains, and it inverts their personalities. So what you end up seeing is, some of the heroes end up becoming villainous while some of the uh, villains end up becoming heroic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty silly concept. It's like something you would see in a cartoon. It's pretty silly, but Rick Remender's writing and execution of it is... It's entertaining. Done, yeah, it's done well enough where I, I don't think it's corny. And it is entertaining. It is absolutely entertaining enough for me to to have a good time while I'm reading it, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I, it doesn't take itself too seriously. I don't take it too seriously. <laughs> it, it's, it's just something you pick up when you want to smile, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still a cool adventure story. Like... Action story, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't... I honestly, look, we've read a lot of comics, and there are a lot of things, a lot of things that are that other writers have made that are dumb. And this, the idea that good guys becoming bad guys and bad guys becoming good guys is, is one of, it, maybe it is corny to some, some people, but I, I've seen a lot of things that are way dumber than that. <laughs> yeah. Way dumber than that. I'm pretty sure I will take that over an emotional spectrum of colors any day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Axis is one of those events. I think it's almost probably universally reviled. <clears throat> Like yeah. I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard anybody else besides us talk about how they enjoyed it. 
Um, in fact, most people probably say it's like downright bad. But yeah. I, yeah, I just I just don't feel that way about Axis. Like it, it's it's too entertaining to to be that bad to me. You know, like I like you said, I don't. It's not something that we take super seriously. Yeah, it still works as a part of uh, Rick Remender's overall his overall uh, work in the Marvel universe. Yeah, so it, it fits with his his stuff and and the, the tone of it is. A little bit more uh, lighthearted than a lot of the other stuff that he's written for Marvel. Mm-hmm. So I could see that being a little uh, incongruous, but when you get down to it, it's a story, like you said, about bad guys becoming good guys and good guys becoming bad guys. And if you just take it at on that level, it does what it's what it sets out to do, and it does it in an entertaining and amusing fashion. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I'm not going to sit here and ponder it and go, what is Rick Remender trying to say? Like, it's, <laughs> it's just not necessary. Like, did you have a good time? Then it did its job. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. Like, just look at the way that me and you laughed about the the various elements that we were just discussing. It's fun, man. It's, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, all right. Did you have any other thoughts or um, no? I mean, you it, like, I guess, I guess I would just say I know it's not Rick Remender's best work or anything, but I'm not gonna. I enjoyed enough of his so much of his work that I think maybe maybe in this I'll concede that there is a chance that my enjoyment of his work in general gives me uh, a different perspective on Axis because. I think a lot of times uh, when we find creators that we really like, we tend to follow them. And even when they write uh, a lesser work, we're still able to find elements of them in that work. And in the larger context of their entire bibliography, we find certain elements that, that we can enjoy or appreciate, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. We're, I will concede that we can be more forgiving of writers that we uh, generally appreciate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What's Um, next on the list, Albert? Next up on the list is Avengers vs. X-Men. So this is a comic where I think I begrudgingly admit that this is something that I think fanboys really were into but i will say i i don't think i was into it for this quite the same reasons they were Uh (laughs) or maybe i was i don't know um so uh avengers versus x-men is pretty straightforward uh it's 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 a story about how the Phoenix entity has returned to earth. And once it, uh, makes landfall. So everyone is afraid of what, what's going to happen when the Phoenix entity returns to earth. And what ends up happening is when it hits earth, instead of imbuing one particular entity that everyone is fearing for, it ends up imbuing five mutants 
with the with the with the power of the Phoenix Force spread amongst them. And they these are five, the Phoenix Five. They are the Phoenix Five. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they go out into the world and they set forth to remake the world in their image, you know, to, to use their powers to um, to show that might makes right. So you have Colossus, uh, you have Emma, uh, Emma Frost as, as uh, so Colossus is one of the Phoenix five. Emma Frost is another one. Uh, Ileana Rasputin, uh, Colossus's sister is another one. Uh, Cyclops is has also been imbued with the power, and the final uh, mutant to be imbued with that power is Namor. Uh, that's your boy right there, man. That's my boy. He's one of he's, your favorite superheroes. Heck yeah, dude. Namor's dope. I mean, his costume was weird in this one, but <laughs> it was a pretty bad luck. <laughs> it good luck, but. <laughs> So, um, you know, so there's naturally this break between the the superhero community where, you know, some some mutants in the X community are are backing these the Phoenix Five because they finally got the power now to to set their agenda. Whereas on the other side, the Avengers are, you know, they're in a position to to basically stop this these these five beings from just wrecking things Mm -hmm. and it yeah it becomes a battle between the avengers and the (laughs) x-men hence the title hence the title (laughs) (laughs) um it was pretty much just an excuse to have the two groups battle each other fight each other yeah so one of the things about this event that i think uh that I think people give it a lot of guff for is I think a lot of people felt that it was a case where there were just too many cooks in the kitchen and that it was kind of disjointed and maybe even a little chaotic just because I don't even remember how many writers there were. I know Hick- Jonathan Hickman was one of them. and Oh, Jason it was Aaron. all dudes that we love, man. It was uh, yeah Bendis, Jason Aaron, Brubaker, Matt Fraction, Hickman. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, there, I think on the face of it, you would presume that with that much talent in one place, that it would, it should be, like, the most awesome thing on Earth. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think for some people, they felt like, yeah, it might have been too disjointed for their taste. And at the end of the day, this was a story where... It was it was really hyped up as spectacle. I, it, like it, it was really just two of the biggest teams in the Marvel universe are just gonna. We're just looking for an excuse to get them to beat the crap out of each other. Yeah, and <laughs> and by this point in time, this was uh, 2012, I think. And by this point in time, the Avengers franchise had really ballooned. You know, they had they had a bunch of their own series or their own teams. There was. The Avengers, the New Avengers, Secret Avengers, Avengers Academy. Yeah, yeah. So it was, they had, you think the X-Men are an army, the Avengers are an army of people too. Yeah. Yeah, there's always a bunch of X-Men teams, we all know that. Yeah. So it was just an excuse to see them all fight. And funny thing is, is 
um, because Avengers versus X-Men was focused on telling a story, there was a spinoff called AVX that was just, every issue was just like two, two fights, like two, two <laughs> matchups between different characters. Like, I don't remember, like, like Gambit versus Black Widow or, yeah. Or, I remember, uh, I yeah. think Cable was one of them. Cable yeah. versus, might have been Captain America or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it really just was really focusing on the the fight aspect of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will say, you know, uh, the the criticisms aside, that the the one thing that I really did like to come out of it was, uh, and this was something that would eventually be expanded upon in later comics by Jonathan Hickman. Uh, there, there was an event that occurred in within the story between Namor and Black Panther, which I think yeah. even to this day is kind of the seed that people use as their animus towards one another. Yeah. Yeah. That, that had a lasting impact on both characters. Yeah. I like prior to that point, it never occurred to me that those two would hate each other or be enemies, but you know, at least not in a meaningful way, maybe superficially, right? But sure, sure. After that, after that event, it was like, okay, these guys have a reason to hate each other. Yeah. <laughs> Namor ended up using his uh, Phoenix power to flood Wakanda, killing thousands of people and causing massive destruction. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, Black Panther, he just wasn't going to let that go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Speaking of uh, Avengers versus X-Men stories, that reminded me of uh, another one from the Ultimate Universe that was just called Ultimate War. Yep. You remember that, that one, one, Albert? Mark I Miller do. and Chris Bacalo? Yep. It yeah, was, that uh, was a fun four-issue miniseries. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. It was a shorter series, but pretty compact, pretty tight. Well done. Yeah. And it, it works even if you haven't read The Ultimates or or uh, Ultimate X-Men. I feel like that is a story that if you just want to see superheroes fighting each other, pick up Ultimate War. It's four issues long. Mark Miller, Chris Bacalo. So, you know, the art looks great. Yep. And you get to see, you just get to see him fight. And there's there's some pretty funny stuff in there. Like I remember there was a scene where, um, I think it was Hawkeye. He 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 falls into the danger room or something, and because like there has been some damage to the computer system, he triggers a, <laughs> a mechanism this. where he has to fight ninja rabbis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I they're they're that. like. They're, quote, they're quoting the Torah to him while they attack him with katana blades. <laughs> There's something funny about that. Yeah, that's 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 funny, dude. That's, funny. that's all I need to know. <laughs> and you have things like uh, Wolverine fighting Iron Man, and the way that that fight plays out is it doesn't go the way that you'd expect. I think yeah. we would expect Iron Man to just you know, float in the in the sky and just repulsor ray him to, to death or whatever. But uh 
yeah, it, it it was it was entertaining, you know, like it was just a really fast paced action story. Yep, with great for art. Sure. Yeah, for I, sure. I enjoyed that one, man. Yeah, it's it's not something like I I don't know how else to describe it, but it's just part of me wants to call it like junk food. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's like a popcorn movie. Like you watch. Yeah, yeah, some, yeah. Some uh, summer sure. Hollywood blockbuster action movie. You know that the story is just it's the story is fine in Ultimate War. You know the the basic premise is that um, the Avengers or the Ultimates, in this case, they they learned that uh, the X Men lied when they said they killed Magneto and Magneto was actually alive. So from their point of view, the X Men are just as bad because they. Uh, I guess they they harbored or or protected a a fugitive terrorist who or, yeah. killed a lot of people. So they're they're out after the X Men, and you know you everybody gets a a moment to shine. You know every everyone on the Ultimates, Captain America, Iron Man, Thor, the Wasp. Uh, everybody has a chance to shine on the X Men, Wolverine, and Colossus, and Iceman. You know they all, they all do something, and you get to see them use their powers in fun ways. Mm. It's cool. Yeah, it's a good series, man. It's a good series. Oh. The next crossover on our list that uh, we enjoyed was Messiah Complex. This was one from the mid two thousands. I, I want to say it was maybe around two thousand six or seven. This was a an actual crossover, so it wasn't its own miniseries. This was a crossover between, I think it was uh, Uncanny X-Men, Adjectiveless X-Men. Uh, shoot, I already forgot what the other ones were. Like New Mutants or something. Yeah, like I don't remember and what the X-Factor. X-Books were in this era. So Yeah, I, th- I think X-Factor was one of them. So it was just like the four titles. Um, but it was... Uh, I remember Ed Brubaker was writing Uncanny at the time, and Mike Carey was on X-Men. Uh, Peter David was on X-Factor. So it, there there was some some good talent, and it was a 12-part story, I think, with maybe a couple of bookends, some one-shot bookends. Uh, and this was a story that came out a little bit after House of M. So at the end of House of M, the Scarlet Witch... Um, She's, she said the phrase, no more mutants, when she was kind of losing her mind. And because of that, uh, a bunch of mutants in the Marvel Universe ended up getting completely depowered. They they lost their X gene and became normal people to the point where there were only, for some reason, I don't know how they came to this number, but there were only 198 mutants left on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> Comics are their arbitrary numbers, man. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and mutants were no longer like baby mutants were no weren't being born. So even when mutants uh, had babies, they were just uh, normal Homo People. sapiens. Yeah. Until the start of Messiah Complex, when it's discovered that there is a new mutant born in the world, and now everybody wants her. Like all these different groups, it's not just the X Men, but uh, you got groups like the Marauders. Um, the purifiers and whatnot, like all, all these 
you know, all these jobber groups in the history of the X-Men that yeah. never <laughs> amounted to anything. They're all just suddenly after this mutant baby um, for for whatever reason. She's special, I guess. Um, and that, that's basically what the story is about. It, it's just about them trying to find this baby because when she's born, uh, a bunch of uh, people go to the hospital trying to find her and it turns out that she's gone. So now everybody's just trying to figure out who has the baby. Mm, mm. So pretty simple concept. Somehow managed to flesh it out into an, a 12 issue or I guess 13 or 14 issue storyline. I thought it was entertaining, man. It's it's still probably my, to this day, it's probably my favorite uh, traditional style crossover where you have like the different ongoing series and you have them written by their usual creative teams, but they're all connected. Mm. Okay. That's... I, I'm... I think I read it... I read your copy a while ago, so it's... Yeah, it's like not 15 so, years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's not so fresh in my mind. Yeah. But, but there were elements of it that I did like. Like, um... Like one of the things, one of the images that always stuck to me was the idea of, uh, and spoilers, I guess, but uh, Cable ends up stealing the child, mm-hmm. and he he goes off to raise her, um, you know, away from everybody. So there's this sort of lone wolf and cub element to it. Yeah, that was probably the strongest imagery for me uh, while I was reading it. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's Cable with the the little baby strapped on his body, running away from all these guys that are trying to fry him with laser pistols and energy yeah. rifles and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you know he's a uh, he's 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 a warrior, but now he's a protector. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I think for some reason I've always been a sucker for stories about uh, single fathers. This is kind of him, in that same vein, <laughs> kind of, oh. kind. I mean, it, if you read this his series that came out after this, that's what it is. He's raising this girl, but in, in Messiah Complex itself, she's just a baby, so she's not a real person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I love babies, man. <laughs> Well done, well done. <laughs> nice, nice. What's next? Next up, we have Deadly Genesis. It's by Ed Brubaker, and I believe it's Trevor Harrison. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Trevor Harrison. Yeah. Uh, this was a story. This was a. I remember at the time when this came out, it was a big deal. There was a lot of talk about it, and. Uh, one of the things about it was um, Brubaker was going to take a mistake or... Yeah, I guess it was a mistake in, or in it's continuity. It's kind of like the secret history of the X-Men that we never knew about. Professor Xavier really is a jerk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tom, like... Uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't one of the things about it was the fact that uh, 
like they had written in this character, this this third Summer's brother from way back when, and then um, he ended up. It, it was kind of a line that someone had put into the comics like a long time ago. But yeah. No one ever really went back to it, and then Ed Brubaker decided to take this one line and expand on it and build in this secret history of the X-Men, of the X-Universe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think back in the 90s, it was probably either uh, Fabian Nassiza or Scott Jobdell who, (laughs) (laughs) just in one of those random comics, had a throwaway line about the third Summer's brother, and then for for years... Wait a minute, there are only two Summer's brothers. Yeah, so for years, people were trying to figure out, what's he talking about? And like I think most people... Like normal people probably just ignored it, but yeah. but uh, because people kept talking about it, Ed Brubaker was like, "You want to know about the third summer brother? Third summer's brother? Let me tell you about that third summer's brother." So Deadly Genesis, uh, with the revelation is, is that back in back in the day when Professor X recruited the all new, all different X Men from Giant Size X Men Number One. You know, the team that introduced uh, Storm and Colossus and Nightcrawler and brought Wolverine onto the team. Like, those guys to rescue the original X-Men from Krakoa. Apparently, that team with Storm and Wolverine wasn't the first team of X-Men that he recruited to rescue the original X-Men. He recruited a team with the third Summer's brother and a bunch of other mutants. But when they went to Krakoa, they failed and pretty much all got killed. (laughs) So... Professor yeah. X, he had no problems with sending children to their deaths. <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes him a great leader. <laughs> leaders, people, people leaders. called him the Mar- the Martin Luther King of of the mutants, but <laughs> I don't remember Martin Luther King sending children to their deaths. <laughs> leaders have to make hard decisions, Drew, and every day a leader wakes up. And send someone to his death. You have to realize that that's harder for on him than it is on the person dying. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when he has to live the rest of his life lying about it. You know how exactly. easy it is to slip up and tell the truth once in a while. You know how easy it is to die. Super easy. <laughs> it's way harder to live with a lie. <laughs> that's leadership, Drew. <laughs> Put that on a postcard. We should we should uh, start a new uh, spinoff podcast where we just talk about principles of leadership. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I have people in my command, I test their willingness to follow me by just telling them to walk into traffic. <laughs> <laughs> if they're willing to die for you, you know you can trust them in a crisis. Exactly. That's how I know if I'm an effective leader or not. <laughs> and if they're not willing to die for you, you know that they don't respect you. <laughs> I have to separate the wheat from the shaft. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Dudley Genesis was a six-issue miniseries, so I think that's another thing that made it easy to, to follow. You didn't really have to... Even if you didn't really know all that old stuff about Giant Size X-Men, uh, number one... You could still enjoy the story because everything you needed to know was contained within it. Yeah. So uh, I think that helps. Yeah. 
I don't remember. There weren't any real uh, tie-ins or anything, were there? I feel like there might have been a, a like a, not really, not not, not really. But... There weren't really any tie-ins, but the story threads introduced in that miniseries continued on for quite some time. They actually got a pretty decent amount of mileage from that third Summer's brother, uh, Vulcan. Yeah. And Ed Brubaker himself, because he was writing Uncanny X-Men for a while, he he did uh, actually follow up on that story with a, a longer story called The Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire. Uh, the... Yeah, the X-Men ended up going out into space because of what happened. So the third summer's brother, Vulcan, ended up somehow surviving the mission where everyone thought he died. Mm. And he ended up going into Shi'ar space. So Havoc, the second summer's brother, assembles a team to track him down. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At this point, I don't know. Like, I, I personally have affection for Havoc, but... He he's kind of the loser summers at this point. I feel like that guy just can't catch a break. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like he gets a lot of love. He he doesn't. Um and even when Rick Remender wrote him uh as, you know, the leader of the Uncanny Avengers in his run, uh like a big part of it a big part of um, Havoc's arc was the fact that he's a guy who has to live with the fact that he's a constant failure who lives in his brother's shadow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You think that's pretty funny, huh, Albert? Uh, You enjoy that? I laugh at it, but I still, I I still like, I, I still like Havoc enough where, I feel bad for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally, yeah. man. Yeah. The next uh, event on our list, and this list is not in any sort of order whatsoever. Yeah, not yeah. Not alphabetical not order, not an order of preference. It's just the order that we thought of them Yeah, as we were writing them down. But you got Schism on the list. Yeah. So this was a comic by Jason Aaron... And I forget who the artist is. Um, I'll have to look that up, and I'll try to get back to was you it, guys. Was it one of the Cuberts? I forget. I can't remember. Uh, I feel like it. I think it might have had a bunch of different artists. Actually, now that I think about it. Oh, okay. Uh, Let me. Yeah. Why don't you uh, share a bit about what you enjoyed about it while I look it up? Yeah. So this was a story about. Uh, so up to this point in time, I think uh, the story had Cyclops. Uh, his character arc up to this point was that he's been doing a lot of questionable things as leader of the X-Men. Uh, and as time has progressed, he's they've just gotten more and more questionable to the point where uh, by the time Schism happens... Uh, it's kind of the breaking point between Wolverine and Cyclops, and uh, and that's that's what the story is about. It's just the moment between the two of them where uh, Wolverine can no longer abide Cyclops's 
leadership and his decision making and and there ends up being a break between the x-men where mm-hmm. cyclops goes his route and wolverine goes onward to to start an academy to to start an academy in the vein of the xavier academy uh that he he believed in you know yeah yeah uh it's it's, it's weird to think that between cyclops and wolverine wolverine was the one to try and uh live up to or or imitate uh what xavier had established yeah yeah it's yeah i i think it even tried to like retroactively take some things like going back to like even morrison stuff where you know at this point cyclops had he had cheated on gene gray and you know gene gray ended up dying and you know he shacks up with emma frost instead and you know that that was just kind of the beginning of a series of questionable uh decisions that he had been making you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um uh, yeah i'm looking at it here it looks like some of the illustrators were carlos pacheco frank cho uh daniel acuna uh alan davis adam kubert uh billy tan uh yeah he's probably the lesser of their <laughs> of, of them but um yeah uh the thing that I liked about it was, well, I mean, one, I'm a Jason Aaron fan, so you know he's 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 a solid writer for me, and I I've always enjoyed anything that he's done. Um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if I necessarily buy into the idea of Cyclops as an evil jerk, but this this uh, comic did open up a. a like speaking of like mileage uh, that they were getting out of uh, specific stories, like the idea of Cyclops going rogue, they ended up taking a lot of stories from that in the in the following years. You know. Um, yeah, and Wolverine and, establishing a school that gave us Wolverine and the X Men by Jason Aaron. Exactly. That was that was his opening for that and. He got a ton of issues out of that, you know, yeah. instead of being like thirty something issues, I think. You know. Yeah, it was significant. Yeah. Oh. Um, and another thing about Schism that I, I liked about it is, it it really works well when you. Or it, it's it's definitely one of the more uh, memorable chapters in the overall bibliography of jason aaron's marvel work Mm. like even some of the smaller characters that he introduces in schism you still see them show up in some of his later comics like uh i think the hellfire club and and cade kilgore they'll they'll show up in his uh wolverine and the x-men stuff and if i remember correctly even show up a little bit in during his thor run so it's it's just stuff like that where you get to feel like you're not just reading the X-Men universe, but you're reading the Jason Aaron Marvel universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally know what you mean. He, uh, 
a lot of the elements that you see in all in the various comics that he's worked on over the years he found a way to thread the needle uh through all of them yeah uh with with the characters and story story points that he he's just been kind of seeding throughout the universe so yeah there's definitely that element of it um yeah i mean i i don't really remember too much of what the actual uh final breaking point was but it the real culmination is just a fight between Cyclops, Cyclops and Wolverine. And Wolverine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it was a pretty hardcore, you know, uh, all out fight between the two. As hardcore as you can get without anyone dying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the you, final uh, thing on our list then. Are we ready to get to it? Let's do it. Yeah, so the, the final one is obviously House of X and Powers of Ten. Hawks Pox, or whatever you want to call it. Hawks Pox, I so... love that. <laughs> <laughs> House of X, Powers of Ten. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a mouthful, man. It, it's a lot to say. How many syllables is that? Um, but yeah, that this story is the most recent one. Obviously, he came out just about a year ago. Uh, House of X basically sets up a new status quo for not just the X-Men, but for all mutants in the Marvel Universe moving forward. While Powers of Ten is really about the secret timeline, history, past, present, and future of the X-Men. And they're two different miniseries that act as one story, which is pretty complex in certain ways. Um, I think it's the one thing on the list that I don't just enjoy it for being a fun spectacle or an event comic. I actually would say House of X, Powers of Ten on its own is a great superhero comic not just a great event comic or a crossover. Mm. It's Jonathan Hickman with Pepe Larraz and R.B. Silva. So it, it works with two artists that have similar styles, but but they they both illustrate each uh, miniseries, so it, it never feels disjointed or anything. Uh, so yeah, I mean, one... I don't, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it other than it's like one of the best X-Men comics of the recent of recent times. I was going to say I so this is one is one that I still haven't quite read yet. It's I I do have my copy but you know there's just a lot You're to just read. like holding it and looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you know that once you read it you'll never be able to read it for the first time again. <laughs> it's still in a trick wrap, man. You just want to enjoy the experience of reading it for the first time. <laughs> yeah. But I was going to say, so would you say that the um, the, the independent miniseries, I mean, I, I, I assume that because he has a singular vision, there's a point in which that 
they uh, tie into each other, but like, are I, I also assume that you can kind of read them independently on their own, and they would make sense. Um, I haven't tried reading them independently. Yeah, they came out in a certain order, so from yeah. week to week, there would be a new issue of one of them. Okay, um, and and the first time I read it. Um, was actually through Ray's copies because he mm-hmm. he was buying them digitally every week, and uh, I, yeah, so I, I read them digitally first um, as he got them, and then I got the the hardcover for myself, and even the hardcover publishes them in the in order, that order that yeah in the order that they were released. So I haven't really yeah I haven't really thought about trying an experiment to just read them. A six-issue, uh, discrete pieces of, so, I think I think it would still work, but I think the full experience was always intended to be you got to read them in the order that they put them out, mm-hmm. because I I think there is there's definitely thematic content that makes more sense when you read it in that context. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the actual if you're just reading it for the plot and and what happens to the characters i don't think it'll matter too much i mean i'm just talking off the top of my head um i'd probably have to reread it more closely to to accurately answer your question but yeah i'd say you're you're best off just to read it in the order that they uh put them in yeah okay okay that was more for my clarification than uh, and yeah. just general curiosity. Because if you read if know. you read House of X, basically House of X is everything that's happening in the present time. So like all the house of all the stuff in House of X is what's going on with the mutants um, in the Marvel universe. And if you look at Powers of Ten, there's a reason why it's called Powers of Ten and not Powers of X. It's yeah. kind of clever actually. Like it it's it takes place. It shows you scenes that take place um, X amount of years in the future, um, and there's a couple different timelines. But the reason why that there's a couple different timelines is because of something that I guess is revealed in the story. And if you haven't read it, I guess you can just find out for yourself. Yeah, um, yeah, we don't want to. Yeah, it'll it'll make more it'll make more sense, but it. it it's yeah, man. It's it's a lot of fun. It's entertaining. There's a lot of um, depth and mystery to it. And like I said, I haven't been reading uh, this past year's worth of the Don of X titles, so I don't know what exactly what things have been answered or addressed. But I do know that when when House of X Powers of Ten was coming out, you know, everybody was talking about it every week there'd be discussions about what happened and people were trying to make sense of it. So I, I do think it's cool that for once, it, you know, an event comic did seem to bring in a lot of new readers. Cause I, you know, you hear stories and like, I listen to other podcasts and, and read articles and, and blogs and stuff about comics. People are talking about how this was the event that got them back going to the comic store um, either after they lapsed or maybe even for the first time. Mm. So it's cool to see that for once there was an event that I think it, we can probably say it did bring in new readers, man. Yeah. Yeah. 
hopefully those people are sticking around. Yeah, like the exactly. The hope is that they took that opportunity and you know the the influx of new readers and they produced something that rewarded them for you know picking up these issues. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, even like, though this I, was an event comic, it was it was a good story first and foremost, man. That's yeah. that's the main thing. This was a great story first and foremost. Art was excellent. The writing was on point. I mean, it's Jonathan Hickman, so you're getting all the data sheets and and the design work um, yeah. from Tom Muller, Mueller. Sorry if I mispronounce his name, but uh, yeah, the design is is excellent, and mm. just the amount of story and information you get it, it's something you'll you'll have a lot of fun reading it um and it's something that you get your money's worth because you can't really read an issue in like five minutes you know like it's something that you gotta actually pay Process. attention to yeah, yeah yeah there there's a lot of meat in these bones you know how sometimes when you when you pick up an event comic you just, you could just read it in like five minutes man because it, it's you know that even if you uh, skim through some of the words, you're not really missing any story elements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But with Hoxpox, you got to take your time to make sense of it. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm well. You know, I like I said, I haven't read my copy yet, but I'm I'm chomping at the bit now. Nice man. So if nothing else, this will hopefully motivate you to unseal it you know if you really want to savor it you could just read one panel per day Uh, (laughs) (laughs) dang that would that would be uh i would i'd be a gourmand of comics right there man (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what gourmand means but (laughs) you know like (laughs) someone who who has a really refined palate who just <laughs> has to appreciate every every little last molecule of whatever they're consuming. <laughs> there you go. Okay. That makes sense, man. That makes sense. Well, now that we've gone over our list of uh, events that we do like, I feel like for those of us that are in the fandom there are titles that would normally make it onto the list but we we made a conscious decision not to include them but we do want to mention them now and probably go into why they aren't on our list yeah yeah. yeah, actually, uh, we were talking earlier today, um, and I think I just Googled uh, best X-Men crossovers, and one of the top results was this uh, list, a listicle on CBR.com, mm. and boy, that is a bad, that, that's like the inversion, that's the red onslaught of, of our <laughs> list, basically. <laughs> <laughs> It's a it's a pretty it's a lowest it's a list of the lowest common denominator I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. So like one of the things uh with the X-Men is that they have a long history of events and crossovers. Most of them are pretty terrible. And let's yeah. 
Let's start with one from when we were kids, man. The Mutant Massacre. What do you remember about the Mutant Massacre? So that's the thing. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I've mentioned this a couple of time, uh, times on the podcast, uh, but as a kid, I didn't really have access to a lot of comics, so I never... I only stayed involved in comics because, you know, my local library, because of uh, Wizard Magazine, and because of uh, uh, things like the, the the Marvel cards. Those were the things that tethered me to, to comics, you know? Mm-hmm. So even if I'd never read uh mutant massacre like i could read an article about it in wizard and i'd be like oh okay i am i was aware of it um well but it just so happens in this case mutant massacre was one of the things that wasn't even on my radar i might have been to a comic book shop once or twice and i might have seen like the the banner for it yeah you know and that might be it but i never really thought of it too much I did look it up on Wikipedia because I just wanted to, uh, you know, give a synopsis of what it was about. But I did learn some interesting things. Here, I'm going to read the Wikipedia entry. Mutant Massacre was a 1986 Marvel Comics crossover storyline. It primarily involved the superhero teams, the X-Men and X-Factor, the solo hero Thor, the New Mutants, Power Pack, and Daredevil. So it was an X-Event. That also tied in with Thor and Daredevil, apparently, <laughs> which is uh, a little unexpected. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but here's the thing that I thought was interesting: the crossover was a surprise success, yielding sales boosts boosts to the mutant-based books and prompting Marvel Comics' long-running running policy of holding such mutant crossovers annually. So I guess this was something that did well. Yeah, yeah, definitely did well for them. I wasn't even aware of that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> like I no, like the 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 thing that I was knew made money for them was the Jim Lee X Men number one. Like I knew that was like a money maker for them, but I I never knew that this was the thing for them too. Yeah, I mean, X-Men was pretty popular back in the 80s. Yeah. And I guess this one, doing an event like, a crossover event like this, boosted their sales even more. Yeah. Uh, I don't, this was a story, when I was a kid, um, growing up in the earlier 90s, this was from the mid or late 80s. I never read it when it first came out, but it was something that was often referenced, so... I would hear about it or, or uh, hear about it uh, from reading other comics or hear about it from hearing other people talk about it. So I didn't actually read it until they made a trade paperback and I found it at a bookstore. So that that might have been in the some point in the 90s. I don't remember what year the they made a trade paperback of it, but that was how I read the story. And I don't really remember a whole lot other than it was a lot of words because Claremont mm-hmm. wrote some of it. Or most of it. Yeah. And then there was the scene in the sewer where X-Factor is fighting somebody. And that's where Angel gets uh, crushed by some rocks. And they have to amputate his wings. And setting him up to become Archangel later on. 
in a future storyline? Um, yeah, like I'm, I'm looking over the, um, the synopsis here and it just sounds like there was, so there was a, a group of mutants that were dwelling in the sewers called the Morlocks and it just sounds like it was a story about how um, these various mutant-hating groups went down into those sewers and just butchered a lot of them. They killed them all, Drew. Not just the men, but the, but the women. women. And, and the, the children, children, too. too. <laughs> I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this is a this whole era wasn't it's not something that I look back on too fondly. I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't really hold up for a a modern reader, I think. Yeah. It's like just your typical your typical 80s superhero stuff that's extremely wordy, uh lots of exposition. <clears throat> I'm not sure what else there is to say about it. Yeah, that's. I think that's a fair summation of it. It's just. It doesn't feel right to like just say, you know, something along the lines of. Essentially saying, you know, it's not of my time. <laughs> it kind of like, was of our time, though. That's true. Uh, well, uh, if anything, it came out in '86. I was five. Well, I guess the thing is, we didn't. I didn't read it when I was five. So, <laughs> so well, I mean, I was five, and you're a little younger than me, so you probably weren't even. Yeah, like I said, I didn't read it until the '90s. Yeah, so you, there's a chance you, I like, I don't know when you started reading, but. I, I imagine that it wasn't it might have been advanced for you just in terms of like how many words yeah Fremont was using. yeah but you know, I could have I could have always looked at a picture of uh, Psylocke. Okay, okay. She okay. she was fighting Sabretooth Man. Her tours, her clothes were getting torn up and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will say that the one lasting thing was what you mentioned, which was Archangel's or Angel's wings getting crushed and, you know, him having the trauma and ultimately uh, being tempted by Apocalypse. Like, I never read, again, I never read those stories, but, uh, you know, when I read the cards uh, about how Archangel, you know, essentially made a deal with the devil you know, running theme tonight, but he made a deal with the devil to restore his his wings, but it made him a a killer. Like, yeah, there was something about that that always uh, that always drew me in. Yeah, yeah. Plus, it's a uh, it's a lot of Claremont. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you want to move on to Claremont? The... Yeah. We yeah. got some more Claremont 
You got his Guardian Wars. What you got to say about his Guardian Wars, man? I know oh, you've read this man. one. I re- okay, so I read it like years ago at the library uh, when I was a kid. And even as a kid, I thought it was a pretty... I, I wouldn't even say I was a kid. I was I was like in middle school, but I remember reading it at the library. And I finished it, but as Guardian Wars was boring... <laughs> it was a story about how the new mutants go to asgard and mingle with the asgardians and um and uh what what ends up happening is loki tries to take uh storm and uses his trickster powers to I, i guess lure her in and uh so that he can use her as a goddess of thunder against <laughs> his enemies or something like that so you know the new mutants go to uh asgard to get storm back but while they're there they get exposed to uh asgardian culture in various ways shape ways and forms and so you know by the end of it, they're all dressed in uh, different Asgardian garb. They've interacted with the different uh, subgroups that uh, make up Asgard. Um, yeah, some of them are even like transformed. But uh, yeah, it was a pretty boring book. <laughs> <laughs> it was a boring book. Too many uh, words, huh? Too many words, for sure. It's like... Art Adams was drawing... He, I think he drew, like, half of it. And he's a great artist. Really fun style. The covers it's, were really good. I remember that much. So much of his art is covered up with exposition. Yeah. Yeah. Exposition and, and melodramatic thought balloons and dialogue. It did nothing but hurt his art. Yeah. I can say that much. Yeah, it's it's definitely a style of storytelling that, for the most part, I think people today have moved on from that kind of storytelling in comics. Yeah. It, it just feels very outmoded to cover everything up with exposition and have people describe their actions when you can actually just look at the art and see what they're doing for yourself. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I find it pretty tough to read um, that kind of stuff. Trust the reader, Claremont, man. Claremont stuff hasn't aged very well. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say about that? Uh, I had a thought, but I forgot. Uh, I... Well, maybe it'll come back to you. Yeah. I mean, Art Adams' art was was good. Oh, oh that's what I was going to say. I think one of the things about it that always failed me is when I was when I was reading it at, at that age was I don't know. I I always felt like the X-Men and the Asgardians were they they were on a completely different power set from each other cuz, you know, they were always calling Thor the god of thunder and 
you know the the beings of Asgardian of Asgard were were gods, or it was a it was a civilization of gods. So, mm-hmm. um, it was when I was reading it, it I, it never made sense to me that the New Mutants could stand toe to toe with. You know, even if it wasn't Thor that they were going up against, even like your average Asgardian, if they were still an Asgardian and technically a godlike being, you know, whatever that means in their world, it, it yeah. still it still never made sense to me that a new mutant could uh, match that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, yeah. It's just one of those logic things. Yeah, it's hard to... It's hard to see what Cypher can do against, uh, like, the Warriors 3 or something. Yeah. Yeah. They'd crush him. (laughs) Volstagg would just fall on him. What about, uh, speaking of uh, Claremont, man... There's a extinction agenda. That was something that was pretty big when we by the time we were reading comics, I think, right? Yeah, I remember that pretty clearly. I just remember the name. It's not. It's another comic that I don't really uh, know too much about, uh, except for the fact that. Well, it had a cool name, I guess. <laughs> X, X, tinction agenda. <laughs> it sounds good when you say it. X. Tinction? X. Or... Tinction. A. <laughs> Genda. <laughs> that, was the, that was right around the time when uh, Rob Liefeld and Jim Lee were becoming big names. Yeah. I remember that story because of their artwork. I don't really remember too much else other than it was on Genosha. And they fought some guy named Hodge, who became a crazy-looking cyborg dude. Yeah. Uh, I think, I want to say, I think they shaved Storm's head or something, and, and she turned into a teenager or something like that. Uh, That's never a good <laughs> direction to go. It's, it's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think she got turned into a kid or a teenager. Um. Yeah, there there's not really much to say about this one either. It's uh I guess it's just really typical 90s stuff because it's Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld. Yeah. So yeah. If, I guess if you if you dig if you dig that style of art um I guess you probably already have this comic. Um yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if I've ever heard anyone mention Extinction Agenda as like one of their favorite uh, events or crossovers, or even a story that anyone looks back at fondly. Oh, you're not spending enough time on Twitter, Albert. Yeah, is that it? Is that my problem? Well, seriously, do you feel like there are a lot of people who advocate for this story? Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people around our age who grew up reading this comic and still have a lot of affection and, let's say, sincere enjoyment or appreciation for it. 
Guys don't. It's... Huh? <laughs> guys don't. Guys don't. <laughs> it's just one of those uh, crossover events that people remember because of the artwork how and the age that they were when they first <clears throat> encountered it. So it's memorable. And it was still Claremont writing Uncanny X-Men at the time. So yeah, um, it's like one of the last big crossovers he wrote before his time on X-Men was over. Mm, okay. It's a lot of the stuff that happened in the story is constantly referenced in, in other X-Men stories. Cause this was the story that had a, that really made Genosha a big thing and the magistrates. So whenever you see any kind of uh, adaptation of the X-Men in, in like video games or cartoons or something, there's always some kind of spin or a take on, the extinction agenda like i remember the 90s cartoon that we grew up watching did their version of or adaptation of this i think i remember that one actually uh and like speaking of things that kept me tethered to comics well i mean yeah the x-men 90s cartoon and mm-hmm. really any comic book based cartoon but was that the story where like they they go to the uh, Genosha and um, they have those collars that yeah uh, shut off their powers uh, yeah and they're all trapped on the island yeah exactly exactly and huh. some of the X Men get brainwashed so they end up working for the Genosian magistrates it's you know it's got quite a few things that. Quite a few of the tropes that we don't enjoy, like mind control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm looking at the plot here on Wikipedia, and it says there's an amnesiac havoc. So yeah, havoc has amnesia. I think I think a, amnesia is even worse than mind control. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a fan of that story trope. Yeah. It can go. It can certainly go. <laughs> what I will say about, uh, especially these past three uh, Claremont stories, what I will say is that if you're curious about these, if anyone out there listening is curious about reading these stories and you've never read them, don't read them. <laughs> I would just say look up uh, X-Men Grand Design by Ed Piscor. Read that instead because he gives you like the the summary of everything that happens uh, in these stories without bogging you down with all sorts of uh, useless tidbits and needless exposition. He just gives you the greatest hits and all the highlights and presents it in a way where it actually makes more sense. There's, it's a lot more fun. There's a sense of humor. Yeah. The art, his artwork is awesome. So yeah, just check out grand design. If you want to read up on, the past history of the X-Men, like from the their original uh, incarnation from the 60s through the whole Claremont era. Um, it's a lot of... If you want to read the Claremont stuff, it, it's a lot of work. Uh, you're, you're better off just reading X-Men Grand Design, which I would say is one of the best X-Men comics of the recent years outside of the Hickman stuff. Nice. Good recommendation. Yeah, for yep. sure. Yeah, and Inferno was another one that uh, Claremont did. That was that was pretty bad too. Yeah, <laughs> that that like, that so one did some. A, 
list of Claremont. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he wrote the X-Men for a long time, so yeah. I guess it, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. That's another one, though, going with the theme of the night. Uh, make a deal with the devil. Get some power, man. Yeah. That's what um, Madeline Pryor did. Yeah, I'm. I don't remember what the what you what deal she was trying to make, but from what I do remember, she ends up the deal ends up opening a hell a, a portal to hell or something like hell, and yeah, demons use it as an opportunity to invade the earth. Yeah, you know that old story. Yeah, <laughs> I think Madeline Pryor was was mad because uh, Cyclops walked out on her or something. Yeah, like yeah, I mean Cyclops' entire like relationship history is one that's uh... yeah. Cyclops is he's one of my favorite X Men characters, but I gotta admit that writers over the years have done a lot of dumb things with him so i kind of tend to just ignore those things and yeah enjoy the stuff that i enjoy yeah that's more than fair more than fair um the <laughs> my the only like real um what's the word the only real connection that i had to this was that one of the first comic books I ever got was an issue of Amazing Spider-Man drawn by Todd McFarlane. And it was an Inferno crossover. <laughs> and the cover was Spider-Man getting choked out by the lizard. And I just remember as a kid looking at that and going, dang, the lizard's messing him up. <laughs> Well, we know from playing uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance that Lizard and Scorpion are two of the strongest villains in the Marvel Universe. They is. They they beat up the entirety of the Avengers uh, starting lineup. <laughs> that they did. Actually, it was the Avengers and Silver Surfer. <laughs> the Avengers and Silver Surfer. <laughs> Scorpion and Lizard, man. Two of the toughest enemies. Why were they so tough? <laughs> So getting into something more uh, more modern, here's a crossover from, I think this is like 10 years ago now, Necrotia X. Remember yeah. that one? All I know about it was that it was, I remember that there was a cover drawn by David Finch of Ileana Rasputin. Am I remembering that right? Oh, was that the one where she had a big tail or something? something i don't know man <laughs> she 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 looked like some kind of a demon thing yeah she had her horns and yeah yeah and um as far as i could tell it was it was a callback to inferno and it was a series that was supposed to be about how a bunch of mutant characters who had died in recent years were coming back to life yeah they were marvel zombies <laughs> were they zombies i don't even know if they were zombies like that that was the extent to that was the extent of my knowledge of it <laughs> i borrowed this one from the library just because i wanted to know what happened and i read it 
and 10 years later, I can't tell you much more than there were zombies. <laughs> oh. So maybe there Wait. were zombies, maybe there weren't, but that's all I remember. And I really don't care enough to look up look it up on Wikipedia and get yeah. accurate information because yeah. this was a this was a bad comic, man. That was that was not something worth anybody's time. It's not even worth googling it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's then that's enough time that we've spent on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Executioner's song. Yep, that was one that I. Vividly remember from when I was a kid because I, w- I was actually trying to collect all of it when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Uh, this was this was the 90s, but it was after Claremont had left and after Jim Lee and Liefeld had left Marvel. Yeah. So I think I think it was a uh, Scott Jobdell and Fabian Nassiza. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was the Cuberts drawing it. I can't remember who the yeah. artists were. But th- this was a story about. Uh, Cable. Actually, it was it was Strife who was uh, Cable's evil twin from an alternate dimension or alternate <laughs> timeline. <laughs> I mean, Cable's already from an alternate timeline, so Strife's from an alternate timeline, and he's a, he's, he's a from clone. an alternate to that alternate timeline. <laughs> Is he? I don't even know anymore. I don't know, man. Any anyway, Strife is is a clone of Cable or something. He looks just like him. And at the beginning of Executioner's song, Strife, dressed up as Cable, tries to assassinate Professor X, who's left in a comatose state. So now all the X-Men people, they think that Cable tried to assassinate their leader. So everybody's hunting X-Force and Cable. So uh, that's yeah, that's pretty much what it's about. There, There isn't really anything else to this, man. <laughs> It, it was something I liked when I was a kid. I was, I was obsessed with trying to get all twelve or fourteen parts of it or whatever, however long it was. Yeah, I don't what think was I was it? successful because I was a kid and I, I, I had a heck of a hard time finding everything in order. But I had enough of it where I could make sense of it. What was it about it that drew you to it as a kid? Why was I this the I just, thing? I just liked the X-Men when I was a kid. That was really it, man. There wasn't anything specifically about this story. Um if it was it was just the fact that it was the X-Men and if it and yeah, I just wanted I just wanted X-Men stories as a kid. That was all that mattered to me. Mm. And knowing that this was a crossover, it, it felt like it was more I don't know, epic or or just a a longer story, you know, where you could you could read everything um, as like one long piece of work. Yeah, but I think as I was a kid, because I didn't have access to, I wasn't able to buy every single issue. I, I was only able to get whatever my parents would buy me whenever I, whenever we saw it at whatever store we were at. Yeah, I just had like chunks of it, so I'm I was probably missing like half the story but i had enough where i could make sense of it yeah yeah the, the thing i remember was the climax because I, I remember reading that sucker over and over when i was a kid it was a story where uh everybody it all culminates on the moon for some reason <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. That makes you laugh doesn't it albert it, it, i mean 
I wasn't expecting the story to go there, but okay. <laughs> sure. Don't ask me why they're on the moon. <laughs> they just somehow end up on the moon. And then, and for some reason, Cable is fighting Strife on the moon. He's yeah. going to put an end to the menace of Strife once and for all. But because Strife is so powerful, he's not. Cable's not sure if he can truly do it in a fair fight. So his he has a contingency plan where he he somehow uh, plants a bomb in his own cyber techno organic arm, and he gives the trigger to Cyclops, his father, yeah, and tells Cyclops, "When I'm grappling with Strife, it's up to you to detonate this." Yeah. And I'm not really sure why Cable couldn't just do it himself. Yeah. He had to make his dad do it. <laughs> he had both his arms. Around Stripe's neck, trying to get past around that helmet of his. It was yeah, just too I, wide. I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> and and that final battle, they're fighting on the moon in some weird space where there's there's I guess enough oxygen or and gravity where they can fight like like normal and still talk to each other. Yeah. Without wearing spacesuits and whatnot, and they're they're just fighting there grappling and then it's not going too well for cable he's getting messed up and then cyclops is watching and and gene is next to him and he's he's just like losing his mind he's like i have to do this i don't want to kill my son but this is for the good of everybody <laughs> and he's like god forgive me and he presses the button and then there's a big explosion and and uh yeah everybody goes kablooey or I mean, Cable and, and Strife go kablooey, and yeah, it. I remember just reading that over and over, and I was like, I can't believe he did that. Cable's dead. <laughs> he killed him. <laughs> he killed his own son. <laughs> oh, yeah, things man. were a little more dramatic when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> that's still a comic i know it's it's a bad comic but every so often i'll see a trade paperback of that at a store and i'll just pick it up and flip through it just for nostalgia nice just to look at those specific scenes yeah yeah if i if i came across the story for a quarter or something i might pick it up just for the heck of it nice man nice just purely for purely for nostalgia, no, no yeah. real artistic merit to that comic. Like, we we found a way re to redeem something that we were just poo pooing a couple of seconds <laughs> earlier. So that warms me a little. That makes me feel warm inside. <laughs> nice man. <laughs> what about a uh, Age of Apocalypse or Onslaught? Do either of those warm you? Uh. So these are probably the the events that are the most vivid in my memory because at the time I bought into these uh yeah I bought into these in a hard way. So um these might have been like the first event comics that I actually bought into. Hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. tell us about your memories. Um so at this point I was in middle school and when Age of Apocalypse ended up happening, um, 
I remember uh, I had made friends with another kid, my friend Edmund, actually, who who was collecting comics. And he was, like, talking about this and telling me what a big deal it was. So, you know, when a kid... When you're a kid and you're talking to other kids about comics, you just there, there's a feedback loop that goes on. So, <laughs> yeah. So you know there was just this excitement about how all the X books that we knew were gonna stop and they were gonna uh, rebrand everything and you were gonna get new number ones and uh, these new versions of the X Men. It's kind of like what we were saying. It's it's the bizarro version of what I was just talking about earlier with House of M, which was, oh, you get to see you know these characters in different locales in a different setting with uh, different designs, and but it was just all kind of ridiculous and yeah, um, and even much more of a cynical cash grab, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing that made me quit superhero comics for a while, Age of Apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, there, was there was no way I was going to be able to afford buying even enough of that story to make sense of it. Yeah. I remember I ended up buying I don't think I got Alpha, but I did get Omega. Yeah, I had the Alpha issue and I I had a couple of uh random other issues, but uh, nothing enough to form a satisfying story arc or anything. I'm pretty sure the source material in and of itself wasn't capable of satisfying. <laughs> very true, very true. Even even if I had all of it, I wouldn't have been satisfied. I would have there felt were... like I wasted my time. <laughs> you wasted your childhood. <laughs> I, totally man totally that that was yeah age of a pop it's it's weird to think how how much affection and fondness people still have for it though it's quite a bit like i i know i told you earlier that um i don't know anyone that talks about executioner's song or was it extinction agenda i, I both both but yeah. i I feel like people actively so think about it this way like I don't spend too much time on Twitter or yeah I don't spend too much time on comics Twitter at all so for me to get wind of how much affection people have of for Age of Apocalypse uh taking that into consideration that that should say something yeah you know yeah it's like anytime Anytime people make a list of best crossovers or best, even just best X-Men stories, it feels like we, we always see Age of Apocalypse on there, and I don't understand that. Yeah, it's, it's something that should have been aged out a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, heck, we were, we were watching that, uh, I'm not going to say his name, but we were watching that one guy's channel, and he called Age of Apocalypse a hidden gem of the 90s. Yeah. Ain't nothing hidden about it. <laughs> Ain't it's nothing not gem-like about and it. And it's not a gem. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hard lump of dried, fossilized poop. 
<laughs> That's what that is. Um, well, just just to be brief, so it's a story about how. Uh, okay, there's a character called Legion who goes back in time, and he is uh, Charles Xavier's son, and he goes back in time with the mission because with the mission of killing Magneto because he thinks if he kills Magneto then his father's dream will be able to come true because Magneto's been the one thing that's been stopping him this whole time. Mm-hmm. So he goes back in time to go and kill Magneto. Uh, the X-Men follow him and a battle ensues. And in the chaos of the battle, while he's about to make his killing blow uh, towards Magneto, the young version of Charles Xavier jumps in the way and gets killed in Magneto's place. And as a result, Legion ends up, uh, you know, he killed his own dad. So back to the future rules. He doesn't exist. <laughs> 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 uh, but as a result, the entire future of the Marvel Universe ends up being warped. And um, the, the future that we end up having is one in which... Uh, Apocalypse is now the the hard and fast ruler of of the world, and Magneto is the one who is uh, resisting and who leading is leading the X Men. Yeah, so that's that's what the Age of Apocalypse is. Yeah, it it, it actually as ridiculous as your description was. It it it's. It still sounds better than actually reading the comic. <laughs> well, that's because it only took me a couple of minutes to, to <laughs> give you that. <laughs> I will say the one cool thing that came out of it, or that I always thought came, uh, that stuck with me, was Chris Bacolo's design. Was it Chris Bacolo? His design for Sunfire? Was that him? I don't remember. Um, maybe that was one of the Cuberts. It could have been one of the Cuberts, but. I did like the Sunfire design for uh for the the Age of Apocalypse version of Sunfire. Yeah, that's a that's a good looking design. Yeah. yeah. You uh, know, and and as much as we rag on Age of Apocalypse, I think a lot of creators who are around our age or maybe a little bit older, I think they tend to actually, have some kind of affection for it as well. I mean, I don't I don't think they necessarily think it's like the greatest thing ever or anything but sometimes you see them do you still see little shout outs to the age of apocalypse in certain comics and it, it still crops its head up in in different ways like i remember rick remender did a it was a big part of his uh uncanny x-force run the age of apocalypse and and there was even a little spin-off miniseries that lasted a while the david lapham one or the mike carey one um my Carrie did one? I was thinking of the David Lapham one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry, I was thinking of something else. I don't know what the My Carrie one was. Are you thinking of Age of X? I think I was thinking of Age of X. Yeah. 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 It had age in it, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Onslaught's another one that gets a lot of love. Um, and that baffles me... It baffles me. Um, yeah, it is I ain't another got one. Any love for onslaught? 
Yeah, it is another one that I uh, that I ended up buying into when I was uh, a kid or teenager, whatever. Uh, the way that I remember Onslaught was well this is something that I learned about it that I I hadn't been aware of until like years later but you know how they were teasing that for the longest time in the X-Men mythology they were teasing that one of the X-Men would lead to the would be a traitor would be a traitor exactly right traitor Traitor! <laughs> well, uh, this might be conjecture, or uh, this might be something that somebody else said, but I, I want to say I read it in an interview or an article or something like that, but uh, what I remember reading was that... so. They'd been teasing this for years and years that one of the X-Men was a traitor. And the, I guess, Onslaught, uh, or I guess this the Onslaught story was where that, uh, where that revelation comes to, to being, which is uh, everybody all thought, you know, was everybody was always wondering this had been drawn out for years. And they were asking who the traitor was, and it turns out that the traitor was Professor X because his powers manifested. <laughs> because he's a jerk. Because he's a jerk, and Professor his powers. Professor Xavier is a jerk. Manifested onslaught. <laughs> well, okay. My understanding of it was that after another event uh, where Professor Xavier used his telepathy to mind wipe magneto uh the unintended consequences of that was that something happened in his subconscious or in the back of his mind that allowed some vestige of magneto's consciousness to combine with his own and that thing grew to become onslaught and that's why onslaught looks the way he looks because that's what happens when you meld a bald old man with <laughs> a not bald old man. <laughs> I was gonna say a man with a red helmet. <laughs> um. Yeah. Is that how you remember Onslaught's origin? Yeah. 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 And so the big deal about Onslaught was Onslaught ended up killing you know, quote-unquote, killing all of the superheroes because um, he basically... He, 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 he has a, this huge battle in the middle of Central Park or wherever with all the heroes and what they end up doing is they crack his armor and he's released into the world as just uh, conscious energy and what happens is in order to stop him, all the superheroes have to contain him. So everybody runs into this energy field and they're trying to absorb uh, his energy into their body. And I think mutant, I, okay. I think mutants couldn't go into the energy field because it would 
revitalize him or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So something like that. Yeah, so all of the uh, Avengers and the Fantastic Four, they were the only ones that could uh, contain Onslaught's energy. And so when they ran in there, the X-Men, their their goal was to strike down all of the Avengers and Fantastic Four in this, uh, in this energy field in order to destroy Onslaught's essence. But on camera, what ended up happening was it captured all of the mutants, killing all of the superheroes. Or at least that's how it was perceived. And that was why Professor X was the traitor that led to the downfall of the mutants. That was... That was painful to explain, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of painful listening to it because there was a way easier solution to that problem, man. You know what they should have done? What? Captain what? America should have just made a deal with the devil. <laughs> uh, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. <laughs> Do you have any uh, thoughts on Onslaught or uh, memories? I guess without Onslaught, we wouldn't have Red Onslaught. And without Red Onslaught, we wouldn't have World War Hate. (laughs) So it was all worth it. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if I'd go that far. That's, That's a stretch. Yeah. I will say that Onslaught didn't bother me as much at the time because... It was during a period when I stopped buying superhero comics. Yeah. I was I was definitely aware of Onslaught. I I knew what was going on because I would still back in back in the day, man, back in the nineties, there were these things called bookstores that had uh comic <laughs> books that you you know, you could actually go to a store, like a physical place and and, and pick it up off the rack and just read it before you decided to buy it. Yeah. And so I'd still read some comics that way, but for the most part um, I didn't really buy superhero comics. Yeah, so it, I wasn't about spending didn't, money. Yeah, it didn't hurt me that Onslaught existed. It was more just like, I wonder what's happening in the X-Men right now. Oh, okay, this is happening. I don't really feel like I need to buy this. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Speaking yeah. of uh, like 90s crossovers, there, there were so many in the 90s, like uh, Phalanx Covenant, Fatal Attractions. Yeah. Felix was, Covenant was Operation was... Zero Tolerance in the 90s? I don't know. It might I think have been so. Like, yeah. I, I think so. Um, yeah, it was... I remember Phalanx Covenant was a big deal because uh, what ended up coming out of Phalanx Covenant was Generation X. And I'll admit, well, I don't, I don't think it justifies Phalanx Covenant, but you know, at least we got Generation X out of it. Yeah, yeah. So. And Phalanx Covenant is an interesting pair of words. I, it sounds I really don't, cool. Yeah, you <laughs> like, individually, I know what each of those words means. But when you put them together, to this day, I still have no idea. <laughs> like, what? what is that? What's the message behind that title? Like, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> uh... The message is, 
these two words sound cool and are devoid of any real meaning. <laughs> uh, Fatal, Fatal Attractions. Attractions, man. Yeah. That was the one with the hologram covers. Magneto the pulls hologram out the cube or square. Huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. It wasn't that the whole cover was hologram. There was just one square of it that was hologram. Yeah, like a rectangle. I, I think it was like the size of a the sh- the size of a trading card, something like say. that. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't huge. It didn't take up the entire cover. Yeah, and yeah. That, it was the one where Magneto pulled the adamantium off a of Wolverine skeleton. Yeah, and that affected Wolverine for years after that. Yeah, that was a pretty bad era for Wolverine. Yeah, the feral Wolverine. Yeah, well. I didn't think of something else. So most people know Fatal Attractions for for adamantium being pulled out of Wolverine's skeleton. Yeah. But people forget. I think Jamie Madrix died in, in that. Uh, oh, he did? I, th- I, I thought he died so. in a different one. Well, I, to be fair, I think he died a bunch of times, but... cut off one head and two more shall rise to take its place well i mean the point that i was gonna make was it's kind of funny to me that people remember it for that for for what happened to wolverine but nobody really remembers what happened to um to multiple man so poor guy yeah exactly that's that was the thought that uh that 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 I was uh, having the other uh, the other day when we were thinking about this and listing this out, I was just like, "Man, must suck to be multiple men." <laughs> yeah, totally got totally got neglected. <clears throat> nobody um, nobody feels any pity for him. No, not at all. And because he's a dude who makes clones of himself. Of himself, I feel like he gets killed off quite a bit. <laughs> like they People always find like oh, multiple men got killed. Which one? Yeah, well, but I always feel like they find new and messed up ways to like to kill him off to give it some sense of permanence. <laughs> but then they always find some other way to bring him back through one of his multiples. You know? Yeah. Yeah, or, the, it, it, it's not too much work to bring multiple man back because you can always say he's just got another dupe out there in the wild. Mm-hmm. Operation Zero Tolerance, you have anything for that? Not at all. That That's one that I, I didn't read. I don't even remember picking it up at all. It's I think the thing that stands out about it is the title. Yeah. That's a memorable title. But the story, as far as the story goes, I have no recollection whatsoever. I, c- I can't even remember uh, if I, yeah, like I said, I can't remember if I ever picked up just to flip through it. So, okay, so this was a story from what I remember. Uh, the, only deta- the, the only detail that I remember from it was that there were sentinels that were masquerading as humans. Oh, okay. Yeah, so like. I've heard of that concept. Yeah, so in the later years of X-Men, uh, I think in Mike Carey's Supernovas, he just he introduces a... Yeah, one of the characters uh, is Omega Sentinel, Sentinel. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, 
Like she she was already an existing character. I, maybe maybe she was maybe she appeared in Operation Zero Tolerance. Yeah, I, I want to say I want to say I can't say with a hundred percent certainty, but I I feel like her concept was from this. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, man. She shows up in Hoxpox. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Oh, is it? I get, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll go with cool. Cool is cool. <laughs> I, I liked what Mike Carey did with that character. Yeah. I liked his run on, on X-Men and Omega Sentinel was fun. Yeah. I I still have to read that. I got to check out your copy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just know that she was in it. I don't really know what she did in it or what her contribution was to the team. But I, I was aware that she existed. <laughs> Which is more than I can say for myself. <laughs> now we're getting all existentialist on you. Yeah. So next up we got Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey. This one is a more recent one. Um, I don't even know how many years ago was it. It might have been like three years. It, it wasn't too long ago. But boy, this was a, a really lousy comic. I borrowed that from the library. Yeah. Uh, it was just... I, honestly, I, I can't really say that anything about it in terms of the, the plot stood out. Yeah. Like, if you ask for a summary, all I could tell you is it's, ex- it's exactly what the title is. Yeah. But the, the emotion and the feeling that I came out with uh, that I still remember is that that was a really bad comic, and I wasted my time reading it. Uh, you sound pretty contemptuous of it. <laughs> I'm pretty contemptuous of it. I, I would say... I think... I'd probably rather reread Executioner's Song over Phoenix Resurrection, even though Phoenix Resurrection is only a fraction of the size. Because at least Executioner's Song has the nostalgia feeling for me. Right. I, I would even go so far as to say I'd probably reread Fatal Attractions, Phalanx Covenant, maybe even Extinction Agenda over Phoenix Resurrection. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, the thing I was going to m- mention was I do feel like I think this came out Slightly before House Effects and Powers of Ten, it was it was definitely over a year or two because because after yeah. they brought back Jean Grey, um, she had her own series for a while. Yeah, I, I I think she had like she actually had a solo series I think, and then she was also uh, on one of the X Men comics. I think it was I don't remember if it was X Men Blue or Gold or Red or something, but yeah during that period of time when they when they were doing those colored teams uh she was on one of them i think yeah and that was when they also gave her back her uh or they gave her i think it was a new costume but it was uh an homage to the jim lee era 90s costume so it was like she had the yellow with the weird with the, with the blue triangles. and the weird thing on the head yeah. Yeah. I 
Yeah, I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a great era for the X-Men, and this particular event was not good either. It was... uh... Lackluster. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Is there is there a distinction between something that's lackluster and something that just makes you want to spit on it? <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, then it's just bad. Okay, yeah, it was bad. <laughs> I was I was searching for the word, man, and I, I couldn't think of the word. But yeah, bad. <laughs> bad. <laughs> You are my dictionary. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The final comic on our list is Age of X-Men. This isn't one that I've read, but I'll admit, just from what I saw, and I think it's fair to say that the... Even the critics tended to agree with this, and you know that's not something that I usually point to, just because I don't really think of critics too often. <laughs> but they're not people. They're like babies. They're not people. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, so what I do know of it was it was. At the time, they were uh, presenting it as an inverse version of Age of Apocalypse, which was, well, what if instead of having uh, an uh, event occur that alters the future in a dystopian way, what if you we an event occurred that gave the you know, the mutant community and the X-Men, everything they, they ever wanted, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, ultimately, something has to be wrong with that scenario because they had to fix fix that and change it back. So it clearly wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Um, it was an yeah. event that pretty much came and went Without anybody noticing. Yeah, it was super bland and no one cared. And yeah, even the fact that the critics didn't have anything to say about it just is a testament to how uninteresting it was. My recollection of the story was I saw a copy of it on the shelf at the library. And I picked it up, and I put it back on the shelf. <laughs> that That's... was uh, a brush with greatness. <laughs> <laughs> that was the closest I came to reading it. I might have read the back cover blurb. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that is uh, too funny, dude. Too funny. No, for real though, the the past few years before Hickman took over, the past few years of X Men comics, they they just weren't good, man. Yeah, there was a lot of trash, um, which is weird because there was even a period of time where Jeff Lemire wrote some of them, but I don't know what it was about that. Like Jeff Lemire is one of he's one of the best. 
you know, normally. Yeah. But there was just something about that X-Men that... He wasn't able to... It, it, the circumstances didn't allow him to do his best work, I would say. Yeah, that's probably... Yeah, that's probably the truth. It's... Yeah. Because even from from listening to interviews with him... uh, He doesn't sound happy about it. Yeah, when I've heard him talk about it on podcasts or, or on just written interviews uh, with uh, comics sites... It just feels like there was quite a bit of editorial interference or editorial mandates that he had to stick to that made it hard for him to really cut loose and do what he do best, you know? Yeah, so anytime yeah. you're constrained by restrictions like that as a creator, it, it's it's tough to do your best work. He's, yeah. He was kind of playing... It was like, I don't know, like trying to play trying to play basketball with only four people on your team and the other team has five people, you know, like, yeah, you can try, but it's frustrating exercise. Yeah, it's frustrating. Oh, and I don't, yeah. I don't doubt that he did the best that he could under the circumstances, but yeah, it just kind of makes you wish that sometimes, uh, I don't people know. If just it's stay out of his way. Yeah. People should just stay out of his way, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't, sometimes I just don't get it. I'm with you, though, when you say that that era of X-Comics, that, that period of time was just, it was a wasteland. Yeah, you know? yeah, I'd I was, say... I was checking them out from the library just because, just to give it a shot, but yeah, yeah, nothing was, nothing was good. Like, I feel like the last, uh, basically the last, memorable x-men that i could think of was the bendis x-men yeah and then once bendis left x-men and jason era ended wolverine and the x-men that's that's when we went into that kind of dead dead period yeah and it's just been dead ever since yeah up until hickman yeah yeah exactly the the other thing is that i don't even think People in general, uh, most people, I don't think they had too much affection for the Bendis era of X-Men either. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't. I think. I think if people... anything, they, they bash it. Yeah. And for me personally, I, I, his his X-Men isn't my favorite X-Men. It's, it's not my favorite stuff that he's written. But... It was readable. Like I didn't it didn't make me mad or anything. I wasn't like how could he how could he bring these teenage X-Men into the present? That doesn't make sense. You know, like that uh, I never thought that. Yeah. It was just one of those things where when I read what he was doing, I was like, "Huh. He's really going to do that?" I don't yeah. know about that, but I'll still read it just because it's Bendis. Yeah. Um yeah, I didn't I wasn't super into it. Like I I don't feel like I have to go out there and and try and own my own copies of it, but just reading it from the library, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. It it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't it was lackluster maybe, but it didn't make it did not make me want to spit on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So Yeah. 
and, and there were moments here and there that were just fun. Like I, I still think that uh, Outlaw X Men book that he did, the one with uh, the Chris Bocklow art where he gave Cyclops the, the that costume the where, where the X is on his face. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, I, I liked that one, man. I like I liked a lot of the stuff he did in in that story, and um, it's it's interesting too that. Even some of the most random characters that he created, like uh, Gold, Gold Ball. Balls, yeah, and and uh, shoot, I already for- I can't remember that girl's name, the one that can freeze time. But like characters, remember. like, huh? I don't remember. Yeah, I can't remember off the- for some reason right now. But yeah, he he's- he created a few characters that that are uh, still getting used today. Like sometimes you you read comics and a guy creates some new characters and after he leaves, nobody ever uses them for a really long time, if ever. Yeah. yeah. But, but with, with someone like gold balls, <laughs> Hickman seems to enjoy him. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't even know if quirky or is the word, but it's, it's funny. <laughs> It's it's pretty funny. Gold Balls yeah. is a is a mutant whose power is to lay balls that are made of gold. Yeah. So he's like he's like the he's like the goose that lays uh golden eggs, except he can he doesn't lay them like once a day or anything. He can just like mani- manifest them or or shoot them or throw them at people. It's yeah. weird. It's a really weird power. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of gross when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty gross. <laughs> Imagining the science behind uh, a yeah a person. Where are these coming from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what? What happens when you try and cook them and eat them? <laughs> oh shoot! That's. That's yeah. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that that uh, I guess these past ten years or whatever of of a kind of lower profile X Men comics was a result of Marvel deciding to throw their weight and their focus behind the Avengers because that's what the Marvel Cinematic Universe was comprised of. Huh. That's a real interesting question, man. Like, I... You know what? I think, given everything that we know, um, I wouldn't be too surprised now that you mention it. Because they... We, when, the, when the Fantastic Four movies were coming out, they stopped making Fantastic Four comics altogether. That's true. So, like, if they're willing to do that, uh, you know, just because a different studio is making a Fantastic Four movie, or, like, what... Yeah, like, I don't see... I I mean, it's still weird to me that they would get someone like Jeff Lemire, who's a high-profile writer, to work on X-Men, but then, at the same time... To, to 
to combine with that with the idea that they are deprioritizing the X-Men as a property because, you know, again, it's it's with a different studio, so they should really focus all of their efforts on making the Avengers their premier superhero team, um, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But then, again, like, if you combine with that with the fact that they got a good writer to do the X-Men, then why? Why do that at all? They could have totally gotten a job or to do it for significantly less. Yeah. Yeah, that's... That... Yeah, that is weird why they would hire someone like Lemire. But then on the other hand... You might as well ask, why didn't they just uh, do what they did with Fantastic Four and just end the series for a, a little while? Yeah. It's almost yeah. like they wanted to give uh, lip service to pumping out X-Men comics. Because I, I guess, I don't think the Fantastic Four have the same uh, following as the X-Men. Like people, I'm pretty sure there are still X-Men fanboys that will continue buying whatever X-Men comics are put out just because it's X-Men. But it doesn't really feel like Fantastic Four has fans like that. Mm. And I guess even though Hickman wrote Fantastic Four, I don't even know if Fantastic Four was ever recognized uh, as the premier title or or a top-tier Marvel title, was it? Uh, it didn't feel like it. it might have yeah. gotten acclaim and and it was good, but it didn't it didn't feel like Marvel gave it the attention that or the or the profile that it deserved. Yeah, I guess even when Hickman was writing it, they did kind of downplay it. it didn't... Maybe, maybe that's why he was able to do his own thing because there wasn't as much attention at the time. I don't know. I mean, Hickman too, that was like one of the, that was like maybe what the second big Marvel thing that he did after Secret Warriors. Yeah. So I guess in a way he wasn't, he wasn't like the Jonathan Hickman yet. Yeah. Once he took over Avengers, then he kind of exploded even more. He was fully formed. Yeah. Or at least more so formed. Hmm. It's it's fascinating to think of like all their machinations and like the thought process that goes into ruining comics. <laughs> um, uh, it takes a lot of effort to be that bad, Drew. Not really. You just have to make a deal with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I uh, I think that is the end of our list. Yep. Do we... We're all tapped out of X-Men juice. Yeah, yeah gross. Um... <laughs> <laughs> you got any... We're all, we're all out of gold balls. We're, our, our gold balls have been tapped. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You have any final thoughts or or anything? Any last words? Uh, maybe maybe one of these days or 
we can do a follow-up or a mini episode or something where we talk about some more X-Men stuff because going down memory lane, thinking about the X-Men stories that we grew up reading and even some of the more recent stories that we enjoy, there's something satisfying about that. It'd be be fun to just do a a showcase or an evergreen X-Men comics episode. For sure, for sure. This was this was a fun conversation. It was it was a lot to laugh about. A lot yeah. to laugh at. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it w- I wouldn't have we wouldn't have started talking about this stuff if it hadn't been of been for a uh, ten of swords. Yeah, yeah. So it did its job in that respect. Yeah, definitely sent us down a, a rabbit hole of X Men crossovers. Yep. Yep. All right, everybody, this has been a fun experience. You're listening to Between the Gutters. Between the Gutters is for the children. Thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) We're like the Wu-Tang Clan, man. Between the Gutters is for the children. I was going to say, was that from Evangelion? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, End of Evangelion. It's one of the things he says. I think it's like his closing line or something like Does that. Does he? At the end of Evangelion. Uh, oh, I don't like, remember that. Uh, he says like, tell the children and tell the mothers or something like that. <laughs> you know, Thank you or something like that. Well, to all the children listening and to all the mothers listening and all the fathers <laughs> listening, thank you. Thank you. We're proud of you. Don't go making any deals with the devil now. Yeah. <laughs>